0: Hello, friends, and welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. My guest today is Steve Mache. Steve is something of a mythical character in the climbing world, in the training for climbing world specifically. Steve has been climbing for a long time, and he has been geeking out about training, working on training himself, training his friends, gathering assessments and data on different climbers and trying to figure out what it is that helps us climb our best for a long time. He's not a professional coach. He is not a professional climber. Steve is actually an economics professor and just loves doing this stuff and finds it really fun. And he is incredibly knowledgeable with this stuff. And I was really excited to talk to him. Uh, Some of you might recognize Steve from old climbing films such as The Best of the West, which is one of my favorites. It's an old Mike Call film with Boone Speed and Chris Sharma, Steve Mache, Jason Kale. It's a great film. I definitely recommend checking that one out. And Steve has been on other podcasts. He's talked on Training Beta. You might recognize him from that several years ago. And I was just really excited to geek out with him on this stuff. I connected with Steve after I talked to John Glassberg last winter. Steve is the guy that helped John figure out his training program and how to structure the moonboard workouts and all that sort of stuff that we talked about in that episode. And it got me really excited to reach out to Steve. I know Steve has spent a lot of time in Waco tanks, and I was planning on spending my winter there. And he has also spent a lot of time thinking about how to structure our outdoor climbing to get the most out of it both in terms of performance, to have good tactics on a trip to send your project, but also how to add a little bit of structure to an outdoor climbing trip to really get the most training value out of it. And that's what I was looking for. So I reached out to Steve back in November or December and kind of pitched him this idea. I'm going to Waco. I really want to level up my bouldering specifically for this sport climbing goal that I have what do you think? And Steve helped me come up with a really fun program. It was really simple, but um, it really worked. I spent 10 weeks in Waco, and I think I came out of it stronger. I sent a lot of really cool boulders, and it gave me kind of a good launching off point to continue to build up my bouldering and hopefully level up. So that's what we dug into in this interview. It was a combination of an introduction to Steve, for those of you who are not familiar with him. And we talked about some of his background and how he got into all this stuff. And then it was really kind of a debrief of the season in Waco and how things went and the thought process behind the program. So I think this will be really interesting for you guys. And I think it'll be pretty easy to take what I learned from working with Steve and apply it to your own bouldering trip or to even your own indoor climbing training if you just enjoy bouldering in the gym, how to add a little bit of structure to that to get more out of it. I did describe the program in this interview and tried to fill in as much context as I could, but I will also be sure to link to the document that steve sent me that outlined the program as well as a screenshot or maybe an excel sheet i haven't decided yet but i will add links to my actual program and what my pyramid looked like and my tick list from waco and even my calendar with my notes and you can see the the plus minus days that we talked about and how all that works so i'll link to all that in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com you can find downloadable links right there at the top of the show notes page. I really appreciate Steve for doing this. As I said, he is not a professional coach and he just did this because he thought it sounded like a fun project. And I think we're gonna keep doing this. I think we're gonna check in before my summer training and come up with a little bit of a plan for a month long or six week long training block that I'm planning for June and July. And we might do another one of these after that and debrief that training cycle and talk about why I'm doing what I'm doing and what went well and what we're gonna change. And I would love to hear your guys' feedback on this, but I always get a lot out of seeing behind the curtain and seeing why an athlete is doing what they're doing and why they're changing things when they change things. I think that context can be really helpful. So I hope you guys find this interesting and useful. And please enjoy this deep dive into my Waco training program with Steve Meish.
1: do
0: Do you have a time limit?
2: No, I'm good. <clears throat> my daughter will be coming home probably around 11 or so hopefully she doesn't come barging down here but uh,
1: that's
2: about it
0: (laughs) depending on how ballet class goes we'll see (laughs) nice how happy she is remind me what is your daughter's name hunter hunter i like that name for a girl that's that's great how old is she yeah three she just turned three a couple days ago (laughs) april 16th ballet class yeah. That's that's a good foundation. That, that's for... that's kind of what they call it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good foundation for a climber.
2: Yeah. Yeah, i will see how that... She's going to be probably pretty tall and big, so she's okay. going to get the first female ascent of the Big Island.
0: <laughs> that's my plan. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> the, master, the master plan here. Just get her doing yeah, it. I've,
2: I've got to... Get her doing no hangs at hangs age four and then she'll be
0: <laughs> climbing V twenty in, in some years to come. <laughs> well, awesome. Uh hey Steve, welcome to uh welcome to the show. It's, good to be here. It's good to be chatting with you again. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah. I f- I figure for um I figure with you, we should probably start by giving a little background on you and your climbing and, and how you got so interested in this whole training thing. And We don't have to go too deeply into this. I know you've talked about it before. And certainly some of the people listening to this will have grown up watching Best of the West, and uh, they will have listened to your training beta interview some years ago, and maybe even read your blog uh, like I did. But for those who are unfamiliar with your name, I mean, you don't do this professionally. You're a professor of economics, and this is just a... hobby that you do on the side. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your background in your personal climbing, and maybe I'm going to make you spray about yourself. Maybe some of your uh, proudest climbing accomplishments to date, and then how the training blog and and how this kind of interest in uh, doing assessments and testing athletes and uh, geeking out about training, how how all that kind of came into the picture for you.
2: Okay. Uh, Yeah. So I've been climbing... Now, I think I started in the spring of 90, I want to say. Maybe 91, I forget. I was in Lake Tahoe. Uh, I was skiing at the time and got into climbing and just have been psyched on it, you know, since then. I mean, literally the first day I went climbing, I remember coming home and like hanging from the door jam <laughs> to try to improve my my finger strength. And then, so yeah, I climbed through the 90s. Uh, that was, you know, I climbed all over the planet, um, mostly sport climbing back then. Cause that's kind of what you did. You sort of bouldered when you weren't going sport climbing and managed to get up a few things, got up to like 14 A's, uh, sport routes. And then in the late nineties, well, in early two thousands, I started going to grad school. And when I went to grad school, I got kind of time crunched. Uh, so I built a wall in my basement and started my basement only has six foot ceilings. So it was a really steep, short wall. And I started climbing on that. And what ended up happening is I would, you know, kind of be doing my reading and stuff while I'm downstairs climbing. I built the wall, it had really minimal holds on it. And I just started thinking about the best ways to to really use my time and climb on that wall for myself. And, you know, I'd been climbing up until that point. I think I had climbed a couple of V11s, maybe a V12 or something, v 12s no, maybe a V12 probably by that point. Um, and then I did really like a season of climbing on that. And then, uh, you know, I climbed a couple more, I went to Waco and did a couple of V12s there. And then we built our crimp shrine wall, which was <laughs> sort of similar. It was a small little woody zone. Um, and we had a moon board <laughs> actually, uh, arguably the first moon board
0: in North America. I've heard you say that. I I love that little (laughs) trivia fact. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. This is before the LED lights, people. (laughs) This is before LED
2: lights. You didn't need them because there are only six problems on the board. So it was like, you you can pretty much figure those out pretty quickly. So we had that. And then, and that's where I really started getting into like fine tuning my training. And then that year i went out and i had a really i had a really good year i had i climbed my first v13 and then kind of came back and then had a bang up year the next year climbed another v13 and uh, some long stand like a you know one in little cottonwood that i've been trying for years and I'd never been able to do hmm. um finally did that and you know a v12 there in little cottonwood and then uh then i kind of made the mistake of Missing the deload week after all of that. <laughs> and instead of doing the deload week, and we can maybe talk about that a little later. I'm sure we will. Yeah. I decided to to up the training and do a bunch of weighted moonboarding and went to the valley to go bouldering and I had a really good trip, but, uh, well, a really good day, uh, almost to the dominator and phantom fighter. And then I blew up my A3 pulley oh. and then didn't, didn't climb for about a year after that, Damn. uh, yeah. like a full a full rupture it sounds like oh yeah, fully snapped and you could oh. hear it they heard it on the ground. Um, <laughs> yeah that's uh, I don't think I'd heard that story before. Oh yeah yeah it was the end at the end of the day I was told I had this awesome day I came close and all these things it was hot and I was like, oh sweet, I'm gonna take a couple rest days. And then I saw my buddy Don in the parking lot and we, he was like, oh, let's go climb for a minute. So I was like yeah okay, we'll go and cruise around I'll cruise around with you for a minute And uh, it was on I forget the name of the problem but it was like V4 or V5 maybe. And it was a four finger flat edge at the top. I was about to chalk up to try to figure out the mantle. Like that's how big the edge was. And uh, I went to kind of reach back to chalk up and it just goes loud, snap, like a gunshot sort of thing. Wow. And then just came down on the ground and felt like I was going to throw up. And and there was a A3 pull. I still don't have one. It's still, you can still, there's a little bowstring going on there.
0: Damn. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, so. it's that's so fascinating. I I find that uh I don't know. I, I for myself and and then so many of my friends that have had that kind of initial honeymoon phase with training. It's so hard to avoid that pitfall. Like you have this first season of training, it goes awesome, you send things, and then you're like, "Oh my god, if that worked, like what would happen if I did even more of it?" And you just Immediately, you know, go even more to the death, and you add more volume or more intensity or both, and then the the wheels come off. Yep. So exactly. If anyone's listening <laughs> that that is impressionable and can yeah. learn from Steve's mistake yeah. and my own mistakes, don't have do like it. like a
2: good three, <laughs> yeah, four weeks stretch, three four weeks stretch of like your best bouldering ever. Don't immediately try to up that by going nuts on like a five day a week weighted moonboard. Session. oh my god <laughs> uh, yeah uh, not advisable yeah. take a week off take a take a rest week and <laughs> up. uh yeah so that was you know early 2000s and then uh you know since then i've been able to get up a couple of v13s here and there um some v12s uh done a few i've sport been able to sport climb a bit oh get into shape a little bit so a couple of 514s and yeah, and then so since then, I've just kind of been into this training thing, and mostly for my own benefit. And then I started the blog website thing whenever that was uh, <laughs> a few years back, um, just for the hell of it. Like, I just was like, oh, man, this is just kind of a cool thing. And I, with that, I so that really got me to focus on kind of the research and go through some of the material and, you know, coming from econ. I'm, like I'm not a a sports scientist, I don't know that much of the physiology, but I'm pretty good with stats and understanding research methodology and that sort of thing. So, you know, I was able to go through the papers and kind of do some of that. And that website sort of started my uh, interest in really trying to quantify uh, training so that you can manipulate the appropriate variables. You know, you basically have volume and intensity, those are your two variables to manipulate. And if you don't, volume is generally fairly easy to quantify, but intensity is the really hard part. So Mm. when you start thinking about quantifying intensity, that's when things get a little tricky, I think, but that's kind of the key point. Like, you know, going back to the finger injury, like if I had, you know, I could have dropped the volume. I didn't, but I could have dropped the volume, but then if I kept the same intensity high, like what would have been the difference? So that, that came about with the website. And it was really cool because when I put that out there, then people just started emailing me and I got into some great conversations, met a bunch of people online. And, uh, we just started talking about all that stuff. And I would, you know, w- they would tell me what they're doing and I would tell them what I'm doing. And then we'd kind of like go back and forth. And I started writing some plans for people, you know, friends for the most part. And that got me to think about really structured training and got me to think kind of put all that together for sort of more long-term. And the thing is like, even, you know, when you're training yourself, it's, it's ill advised, you know, you can talk to, you know, talk to the best coaches out there. And like, they're going to say, you know, like probably say like, don't train yourself. Like they might be a better coach than the person who's actually training them, but Just by virtue of getting out of your own head Mm. and really having someone else observe what your weaknesses and strengths are and tell you what to do and listen to it, that's usually really helpful. Otherwise, you kind of just end up going down the road of where you you think you need to go. And if it's yourself, you make the same, you know, it's it's much easier to do it for someone else. Mm. It's much more effective, I think. Mm -hmm. So writing all those programs kind of got me to think about that. And yeah, it's mostly been a practice of self-experimentation and talk with other people. And, you know, I've had the good fortune of being able to climb around some of the best climbers in the world for the past 30 years. And that I think is really informative. That's really informed where I am today with my training is kind of what, what have the elite of the elite sort of traditionally always done. And that's, you know, where, that's where, that's how we got to that Waco program that mm. I put together for you. is kind of like, that's really modeled on what elite boulders have been doing for, you know, really since the early nineties.
0: Mm. Cool. Yeah. Let's, let's dive into that. I want to share a little bit of context for people about how you and I connected. So I was that climber that uh, has, I, I've probably watched best of the West Certainly, over a dozen times. It's I think it's the greatest bouldering film of all time. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> it's this old Mike Call film. For people that haven't seen it, I definitely recommend getting your hands on it somehow. But Steve Mache, uh, Boone Speed, Chris Sharma, Jason Kale, Tim Kempel. It's it, all of them hanging out in Waco and just climbing hard and it's just kind of this old school skate style film before everyone had iPhones and made everything all fancy and it's just the best. So I grew up watching that and then I actually I, I was thinking about this this morning and it's funny I don't remember if I had become aware of your training blog independently of the the training beta podcast that you did but you did an interview with Neely and I remember listening to that and I took a lot away from that. And at one point, either before or after, I I really, I don't think I've told you this, but I really did a deep dive into your blog. And I actually ended up recently going back and finding all these spreadsheets that I have where I had kind of uh, written down all of your benchmarks that you like to see for all the different grips and everything. And I was testing myself regularly and trying to get towards your full sturker or half sturker, or whatever <laughs> all those all those measurements of like if you can hang this much on a pocket you're awesome if you can't then you have something to work on or, or room for improvement here so i was really thrilled when i had that conversation with john glassberg recently um i think episodes 51 and 2 for people if if you want to check those out but i talked to john John's amazing. You know, he's a videographer, makes amazing climbing films, but he's also a, a crusher, boulderer. Recently did his first V fifteen after, you know, twenty plus years of climbing. And we really geeked out about his program and a lot of what he's doing now, he credits you um, for, for having taught him or, or, you know, worked with him on. And it was funny because talking with you after the fact, it sounds like John has drifted a little bit from, (laughs) from where you guys started at least and added a lot of his own things. But, but yeah, after that conversation with John, he offered to connect me with you. I was really excited to chat with you. And I had this idea for this Waco trip. I was planning to go to Waco anyway. I've always wanted to go And I really wanted to think of my trip as more of a training trip than a climbing trip. You know, I live on the road and I have an opportunity to climb outdoors all the time, but I do enjoy structure. I do have, I do kind of always think of my own climbing with this longer vision or this longer arc of wanting to improve over the years. And so I, I was willing and kind of excited to take a chunk of the winter and just focus on training. And when you and I started talking and and kind of formulating a plan for a couple months in Waco, it was really funny. I was kind of ready for the John Glassberg program. I was ready to, you know, go buy a pair of sweatpants and a new gym bag and get my pre workout going and do a bunch of hangboarding and just kind of train and go to the death. And I think one of the first things that you said in our first call was we're not going to do any hangboarding. (laughs) <laughs> and i was i was really interested in that and it was uh it, it ended up being a a really fun program and i i think it helped and i i got a lot out of it but yeah having read your blog and kind of obsessed over you know your assessments that you'd done some of the data that you'd gathered trying to hit these specific hangboard numbers i was really surprised to hear you talk about how your philosophy has shifted over recent years and, and how you've kind of come around to, I, I think you said you've recently been really into this idea of using climbing to train. And this all ties back to what you just said about, you know, having observed all these amazing top end climbers like climbing with Sharma, or I, I think you climb with Fred Nicole and Waco over the years. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm blabbing now. I, I would love to just hear how your perspective has shifted. Um, when it comes to training in a traditional sense with weights and hangboards and moon boards, uh, to where you're, where you're at now with kind of focusing on using climbing itself as more of the main mode of training. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear how you're thinking about that these days.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. So one thing, the, the first thing I'd like to, you know, when we talk about training for climbing and performing with climbing, um, you really, it's individualistic. So, you know, what John needs to get better, is not necessarily what you're going to need to get better, you know. So John is a bigger guy. He's done I don't know how many million V13s, you know. He's, <laughs> his his root pyramid is is really wide at the base. You know, his struggle is he's done so many you know quite hard problems, but he has kind of a flat. He was sort of topping out, and he's trying mm-hmm. to get into that V15 range. So if you look at this, just if with anyone out there is climbing, if you have your boulder pyramid. And you're really flat at the top, like you know, say, you know, if you've done whatever, 20 V10s and one V11, that's an indication that you're flat at well, what's you're flat at the top of your boulder problem. So that's an indication that there's something that's needed to get you out of that sort of rut, so sort to of speak. And with, you know, with John, it's kind of a case of, you know, he's a big dude. So it's like finger strength. It's some of the body strength. It's some of the really typical gym metrics that you would, that he, he needed to, to get into those new levels. So for him, a program that was more geared toward that was, is much more effective. Um, in your case, you were kind of on the other end. You hadn't really been bouldering much lately and really over your history, you hadn't bouldered all that much um and you're coming into this trip in waco without really knowing kind of where you were and your root pyra- your boulder pyramid just wasn't that big <laughs> so yeah so you're you're what you needed to do was kind of find your ceiling and build out your pyramid with experience bouldering and getting the climbing strength which is much more than just finger strength so one of the things. You know, when you think about climbing strength, it's it's an emergent thing that comes out of all these different little strengths. And these strengths are like hang strength, pull up strength, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't turn into climbing strength until all of those individual reduced strengths interact with one another to produce climbing strength. So, for example, one thing that's often overlooked with climbing strength and bouldering in particular, and this, you don't see this as much in sport climbing. So when people come from sport climbing to bouldering, they kind of miss this, this translation here, and it's moving in between the moves, getting your feet moved over to where they need to be maintaining tension that whole time, being able to keep your feet, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, keeping compression, doing all of that stuff plays a huge role in how hard a boulder problem you can do. Uh, You don't see it so much in sport climbing because the feet tend to be bigger, there's less tension, all that. Um, But you can only really get that by bouldering. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can really only get that, you know, there are some sort of woody style things that you can do, but really it's outdoor bouldering. And that's where you get that particular climbing strength. And being in Waco is perfect for that. That, That's what you can train. Um, So for you, I thought the idea, it would be like, well, you know, we don't know if your fingers are weak, if your fingers are limiting your climbing ability, if they're limiting your performance. So let's get that boulder pyramid figured out and get you leveled up as you know, you want to say, uh, to where you want to be to where it starts to become an issue of some of these individual strengths. Like in your case, yeah, hang strength, finger strength is going to be an issue like that's that's kind of holding you back at the moment but it wasn't holding you back to get to v10 so you mm. you got to v10 without getting your fingers any stronger without doing any hang boarding without doing anything else and now you have a pretty nice pyramid to move on to v11 and you know maybe to move on to v11 you're going to need to get your fingers stronger mm. and for that it would then be okay go, let's go back to the hangboard and let's hit that hangboard harder Um, But it's always going to come back to the performance aspect of it. So, so when I say, you know, more into the climbing training part of it, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to quantify the climbing portion of it to add into, or actually I should say the opposite. I'm trying to quantify the climbing portion so that when you add in the accessory exercises, like pull-ups and hanging and that sort of thing, you're getting a
0: much more complete training program. Mm. Got it. Okay. So, so what comes to mind is, uh, one of the things we focused on early on was trying to figure out like what my in a day max was, and then what my like max, max V grade was. I know that, um, if I'd had access, I think you would have had me test on a moonboard to see like what my in a day max on a moonboard was. So you're talking about that kind of thing as an additional kind of assessment, in you know, along with seeing what your one hang or one arm max, uh, you know, 20 mil edge is or, or that sort of thing. So you've, it sounds like you've added more of that climbing focus to the assessment to paint a bigger picture of, of where the climber's at.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a few things with that, you know, what I see more often than not is people who are underperforming their finger strength. Mm. Um, you know, that is, yes, let's dig into this that. That is way more, <laughs> that is way more common to me than people who are overperforming their finger strength. So for example, when I say underperforming versus overperforming, let's, you know, pick some, some measure, say, if you can hang, You know, on average, people who can hang 100% of their body weight from a 20 mil edge for five seconds with one arm are climbing V12. So let's say you go to your edge and you do that and you hang 100% of your body weight for five seconds, yada, yada. And you're only climbing V9 or V10, you are underperforming your finger strength. So, you know, we typically say, well, you know, you don't need to work on your finger strength. But also we want to think about it as, yeah, you really don't need to work on your finger strength, but what that means is you need to work on something else. Mm. And then you have the flip side where maybe you're going out and you're climbing V12 and you grab onto that edge, that 20 mil edge, and you can't touch a one-arm hang on the thing. So then you're overperforming your finger strength. And that's sort of where, uh, you know, where I kind of break that finger strength aspect down. And I typically see people who are, who can hang a ton of weight on a hangboard and they're not climbing as hard as they should be, mm. uh, according to their finger strength. But when you look at this from a boulder pyramid perspective, you don't see people who are, you know, it's total logical to say, well, I'm climbing V12 and I'm performing at V12. So <laughs> you're not overperforming or underperforming anything there. You're you're performing exactly where you need to be. And that's where the Boulder Pyramid comes into play. So you have, and for those, we can sort of outline the Boulder Pyramid. And the way you do this is you take your, I say in a day, but it doesn't have to be in a day. It can be in a a couple of days. You can take the level of Boulder, the V grade of Boulder problem that you can do in a couple of days um, currently. And you put that at the top of your Boulder Pyramid. So say, so in your case, it was V10. So V10 goes at the top of the boulder pyramid. Then what you go down, you go down one level. The next grade is you want to be ha- have at least two, if not up to four V9s for that. And then you go one level down for V8. You want around, you know, anywhere from four to eight V8s. And then it starts to get a little murky after that. But then you want, <laughs> say, you know, 12 or so V7s and like 20 or so V6s. And what you do is you set that pyramid up. You can even draw it out with little blocks. And you know you fill in what you've done in that pyramid. And if you're just a straight line from V6 up to V10, you've done one of each all the way down, <laughs> you need to work on building out your pyramid. The skyscraper. That's going to get you, yeah. <laughs> if you got the skyscraper pyramid, that means what you need to do is you need to go climbing and you need to build out that pyramid in a structured way And we can talk about that, like how how you structure it, but build out the pyramid in a structured way. Whereas if you were the other side of the coin where like you have a really square sort of, I don't know, strip mall style pyramid (laughs) where your top level is just you've done, you know, like I was saying before, you've done 20 V9s and one V10, then it's like, well you don't really need to be working so much on those lower grades of the pyramid. You need to be working on the upper grades of the pyramid. So what is it that's keeping you from doing that? Mm. And in some cases for people, it's it's comfort level, you know, they don't like projecting something for three weeks on end and not going out and doing their V 10s in a couple of tries. Uh, So it can be different things, or it could be a finger strength issue or it could be something, something else. Um, But that's sort of an indication of where, a person is and what they need to be working on. Mm. Um, yeah. So, so that's I kind of forget what the question. Where we
0: started <laughs> Another, yeah, this is, this is great. Um, I'm, I'm trying to decide where to go from here. I think just to fill in a little more context for people, cause there, there's probably some people that have heard me talk about my own climbing history that are kind of, that have a question mark in their head. And uh, I, I want to clarify that I have, I did a lot of bouldering when I started climbing, and there have been some chapters where I've done more bouldering. So a few years ago, I had a really good trip to Bishop, and I've climbed a lot in Bishop. Um, in the past, you know, mostly before I moved to to Bend, Oregon, and climbed a lot at Smith Rock. But uh, to your point, this was really the first focused chunk of outdoor bouldering that I've done in years and years. And I've done very little bouldering in general in that kind of steep Waco style outside of the climbing gym. So, um, so yeah, it was, it did feel really important to, uh, to build experience again and just practice just just learn how to climb that waco style and and build all this experience so uh, we pretty quickly figured out that v8 was about the hardest thing i could do in waco in a day given the the style you know of course some of them are harder than others um, for any individual person but uh, we used that and then we kind of figured that v10 would be a, a reasonable project grade for me and and I think we nailed that. I think that turned out to be just about just about perfect. I tried one. I ended up trying Free Willy, uh, which I, which was really fun to try. That that's a really difficult style for me. That's probably like the last style of V10 that I haven't done. Um, that it's kind of like a moonboard climb for people listening. It's like a forty or forty five degree overhanging wall, fingery holds with a big jump move to the lip, and I tried that basically the entire trip and got couldn't have gotten closer, but didn't do it. And then I kind of shifted towards the end of the trip and did a different V10 and did that one pretty quickly. So I, I think we got the intensity just about right, but I think maybe, um, a topic to pivot into from here is the 85% sweet spot and how you think about, you know, where we should be focusing or where you thought for me that I should be focusing most of my climbing effort to be building strength but also be doing enough climbing to build experience and, and just getting enough volume in and, and maybe where that came from. I know that you read a lot of literature about strength training and have really focused on um, or really dug into other sports and have tried to adapt that to our climbing. But but yeah, how do you think about the, the 85% thing and where did that come from?
2: Okay, yeah. So we'll start out begin at the beginning. Um, 85% part of it comes a little bit later. Okay. So what I noticed with my own climbing is I have that I've had my best bouldering seasons when I've done quite a bit of volume, a couple of grades below what I was projecting on. So I was out there doing a lot of climbing on stuff that was hard for me, but not so hard that I wasn't doing it in a day or so. Um, and then I started thinking more recently, actually, the past couple of years, uh, I started kind of thinking about that. And I looked back on the history of bouldering. And when you look at, you know, the elite climbers, the elite boulders um, going back into, you know, you mentioned Fred earlier, like into the early 90s. And, you know, so he was bouldering V14, but... By default, he was climbing, doing most of his climbing in the V10 to V12 range because he would show up to a place like, say, Bishop, and there just weren't any V14s for him to climb. So Mm -hmm. what ended up happening is, you know, he goes, he does stained glass, he does these other V10s, 11s, 12s. So he ends up climbing a bunch of his climbing time by default is spent in that V10 to V12 range, maybe v 13 As we've moved the grades up, you know, nowadays we're talking the elite boulders in the world are going out and climbing V16, V15, V16. When they show up to a climbing area, there just aren't that many V15s and V16s to even do. So what do they do? They end up climbing on V12s, V13s, nowadays V14s, because there's quite a few of those. So I started to think about that. And I noticed, and you can look at, you know, say 8A, go to 8A and look at all time top 100 boulders. And they're all going to have these really stacked out, nice wide base pyramids. That's going to start probably around 8A. They've done hundreds of 8As. And that's because those are the grades that are available for them to climb. And what it ends up doing is it ends up getting them climbing, spending the predominant portion of their climbing time You know, anywhere from two to four grades below their maximum. And that's what boulders have been doing. And it works. It's pretty much the same thing for sport climbs, but that's what Mm. boulders have been doing forever. So there's no need to make any transfer. That's what the elite boulders have been doing forever. So you don't need to make a transfer from saying, okay, you can hang 105% of your body weight that equivocates you with being able to climb V14. It's like, well, you climbed V fourteen, so you can now <laughs> climb V fourteen, um, and that's where that whole idea comes from. So, and then I started, you know, this is just personal, just observation of the world, and you you kind of think about when, you know, some of these elite folks come to town, you know, bouldering little Cottonwood or whatever they're climbing V sixteen. There isn't a V, well, there is a V sixteen now for them to do, but so they might have their project, which is the V sixteen. But what do they do? They show up, they warm up. They might do one of the classic V10s, V11s at the end of the warm up. Maybe there's a project that's none of the locals could do, but they can do it in a couple of tries, like V11, V12. So they end up doing that. So it's like that's what I was talking with you about second stage warm ups. Mm. So they show up and they do by default. They do the V12 local project or V11 local project as their second stage warm up. Then they go and try their main project, but then the next day they go climbing, it's like, well, there's this really cool other project that might be like v 13 or v 14 So then they go and do that. So most of the time is spent on a couple of grades below what their maximum level of climbing is. And that's where I come up with this this 85% rule. So I I quantified at 85%, um, that's kind of arbitrary. But that goes back to a moonboard test that we did about a year ago. If anyone was on the app at all, there was an assessment thing. And what you would do is you would go and try to do the hardest boulder problem you could from this list of like 12 problems. And then you would do you would subtract two grades down and try to do that problem on the 30 seconds as many times as you can. And we got. You know, I I understand people don't complain too much about our research methods here, but we got quite a few (laughs) observations and I know there was some BS going on there. But on average, people did about four and a half reps, two grades below their max and 160 ish, I think, observations. Um, So if you look at so now we're talking about the 85 percent part and the, the strength training, the weightlifting stuff. So there's this table called the prilipin table, and the prilipin table estimates what your one rep max should be in a particular lift based on the number of reps you do. Mm. Um, And that's a terrible way to estimate your one rep max uh, because people are all over the charts on that. Some people are high recruiters and their one rep max is way above what their five rep max could be. Um, Other people are super enduro, low recruiters, and they can probably do their one rep max. They could probably do it five times, mm. but they can't do any, any heavier. Oh yeah. So the and tables are, are not a particularly great way to estimate your one rep max. But if you go in reverse and you have your one rep max, you can kind of tell, you can kind of tell with the law of averages, what you should be doing. If you're a fairly well-rounded athlete in this lift for five reps mm. based on that one rep max or four reps in this case. So it turns out to be around 85, 80. I think it's officially 87.5% is around four reps. Um, If you can do four reps of something, that's about 87.5% of your one rep max. Okay. So that's where this 85% number comes into play. And now what makes that? So then I designed a bunch of workouts based on those, on that number. And I did a, a lot of them myself. I had some friends do them and it really works out well that around two grades below your maximum in a day and a couple of days climbing grade is a quite good estimate of a strength training level. So this would be kind of doing training in your bench press at three to five reps. So where your three to five rep max would be, that's the best way to go out and get stronger in the bench press is to work in that three to five rep range. It's not to go out and try to do a one rep max. Every time you, Mm. you, you lay down on the bench, you're not going to get that much stronger. You're not going to get really any stronger. You're going to keep just getting the one rep max. It's going to be the same. And it's also not good to go out necessarily. If you're looking for strength to go out and do 20 reps. So you want to find that sweet spot in the bench press to get stronger at the bench press. And that's around 80 to 85% ish. And I think in bouldering it's around two, that level is around two grades below your maximum. So for you, your max was at V10. So the two grades down the V8 range is really your premier. That's your strength sweet spot. So V8 for you currently is going to be the boulder grade that will produce the most climbing strength gains. And you're getting the experience in doing all that stuff. But when we talk about climbing strength as this really holistic phenomenon, that's that's the level that you're going to be doing it. And you know, you got to the end there, and you know, you're kind of definitely climbing V8s fairly handily. But generally the V8 would take you, you know, it's it's difficult enough to where it takes you a couple of tries. You have to think about tactics. You got to get the moves right. You got to figure it out. It's not so easy for you that you're able to just like go up it and not think about it. Um, And that's a a really good level of Boulder grade to be training for Boulder. Mm. And, you know, you talk about experience and skill acquisition. And if you're for skill acquisition, you want to be trying hard enough that You know, the move is hard for you, but it can't be so hard that you can't do the move because then you're not acquiring the skill. And if it's too easy, you don't need to do the skill the right way to be able to do the move. And I tend to think my experience and then looking back historically, it's that two grades below max level where you want to spend the majority of your your training time Mm. when you're talking about climbing. And then, so then we manipulated that, variable so starting from your max you start with your max at b10 then you have your strength training zone which is your v8s and then you have your volume zone which in your case is the v6 and v7. and what you do is we then took those basically what is that three those three me- measures and put them together into what your weekly plan would look like. So with the weekly plan it goes on Monday now say you were climbing, three days a week. That was the plan, which I think is a really good amount of, uh, climbing for a bouldering trip or performance phase, uh, where you're not really thinking about training. I mean, you say you were kind of taking this trip as a training trip. Really? The way I think about that is you're performing and getting some training benefit out of it. Okay. So I was kind of teach thinking of it as a performance trip. And you're also able to get a training benefit in addition to that. So we had Monday, your Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday was you know, your two days on rest. So Monday was going to be your project day. So what that would look like is you warm up and then you go and do a second stage warm up, a V6 or a V7, something along those, those lines. Then go over to the project, then stop when you're done working on the project, when you're feeling kind of cooked, rest Tuesday, Wednesday was your volume day. So Wednesday, now, this is where the intensity starts to come into play. And you really want to be kind of going after a V8. You might do a second stage at V6, and then maybe you do a problem after the V8. Uh, So on that Wednesday, you might warm up second stage on a V6, then go over to a, a V8, and then finish off the day with maybe a V7 or another V6. Rest Thursday, and then Friday is your Submax project day, which was the goal is to try to hit a V9 on that day and then more V6s and V7s. So you're really working in that, you know, I guess the bulk of the work for you is V6 to V8. Mm -hmm. And if all went according to plan, even if you didn't do your project at the end of the week, you would have done maybe three V6s, two or three V7s, a V8 and a V9. And if you do that every week of your your trip, that's performance. That's a good trip. You're getting a lot of bouldering in. You're getting a lot of strength training in because you're pretty close to your max. Those moves are hard for you. And you're getting the the psychological success component to that. Uh, So that's, yeah, I mean, that's how we designed your trip. And I wouldn't change it too much, even if you were really shooting for a particular project like you really had your eyes say like i just want to do this project Hmm. um i was still would have kept it pretty similar
0: yeah what what about if i didn't care at all about sending a v10 on this trip what what would change in that case would we focus even more on like the v8 range or is it important to continue to have those days where you're trying something closer to your limit how do you think about that um yeah so if you were if you
2: didn't have any particular project goals in mind i would still put it at v10 so you still want to have that performance day at v10 Um, i would probably have suggested not free willy Um, (laughs) i would have you know we kind of knew at that point that uh i didn't really know at that point but i think we kind of figured out over the course like you happen to be quite good at compression steep compression climbing and you might not have even known that about yourself going in um, but you hiked theater And there are plenty of steep compression V10s that you could have been doing. And if you had been focused on those, you probably would have gotten a couple of V10s out of the trip. Um, And that's just a key when you're just a a point to be made. If you're, whenever, you know, it's a Dan John quote, you train your weaknesses, you compete with your strengths. Mm. So what that means is when you're going out and trying a boulder problem at your maximum V10, you want to find the boulder problem that fits you the best. That's, you know, it's not like, so in your case, free Willy. you know, it's a moon war problem. Um, So for you, maybe a V8 more like free willy Mm. would be like a good way to train for doing free willy. But when you're at your limit, you want it to be something that you're particularly good at. Mm. Um, And yeah, so that's, so that's what I would say if you had no idea, if you had no object in mind, you would have done the same exact programming, except that V10 day, we would have probably figured out some V10s that were more in your wheelhouse.
0: Okay. Okay. Yeah. And
2: that... then figured out some V8s that were more like Free Willy mm. that you could then be doing to train for the Free Willy
0: style. Got it. That's really interesting. So I, I'm someone, I, I mean, it's it's fun. It's really shifting a little bit. I'm really pretty amped up on bouldering these days and have some specific goals for it. But I tend to think of bouldering kind of in like the old school sense that I'm really using it as training for sport climbing. Like my, my ultimate goals are in sport climbing. And I think what kept me going back to free Willy was that it felt more relevant for the kind of sport climbs that I want to do in the future. But in hindsight, I'm, I kind of been thinking you're right. Like Maybe I would have learned even more or or made more improvement at that style if I had found more V8s in that style and then continued to, as you say, perform in my strengths and, you know, uh, do the compression climbs or the steeper stuff that might not feel as relevant to the sport climbs I want to do. But I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's – if if I'm good at steep compression style, and I think you're right. I think that is a strength of mine but I don't know if that's going to serve me very well in my sport climbing goals. Is it still worth seeking those out with a bouldering trip like this? What do you think about that?
2: Well, yeah, so that would be a, a decision of goals. So you could you could drop that. And if you are just going for training for your sport climbing stuff, then you want to be in the V8 range in that free willy. So your, your Monday might be like trying to do a couple of the 8s And then you, know, you might try to build up over the course of time to get to V9 in that, in that range. Mm. So again, if we think about the 85% idea and the bench pressing, if you're thinking, okay, free willie is the style of training that's gonna best translate to sport climbing, that's like going out and trying to do a one rep max on mm. the bench press every time you go training. Whereas if you want to improve your bench pressing, or if you want to improve your sport climbing with that style, you want to be having, you want to be doing the moves. You want to be doing the problem. So that would put you down around the V8 zone for that particular style of climbing. And even, you know, in Waco, you can get down to V7s and V6s in that style that are quite difficult, you know, quite fingery, quite tensiony that way. Um, so that would have, been a perfect case of like, okay, let's focus on this strength zone and we'll go through and pick out all the V eights and a couple of V nines in that stuff that are in that style. And that's what the trip is going to be built around. Hmm. But it seemed like you want to do free willy so I did. Like, well, I did. Let's <laughs> give it a let's give it a go, of course. Uh yeah. And and you know, and I think you I mean I think you you got it.
0: Like it's just, yeah, yeah you know, like I said I couldn't have been any closer. I had I had a try on on one particularly good day, and it was end of the session too. But I had a try where I uh, stuck the lip, swung out, held it for probably a second, and then as I started to swing back in, I didn't have the hold quite right, and my hand slipped off. But um, it was it felt like a heartbreaker. And then we, I, I'd love to actually get into this, but the Waco downward spiral. It was just one of those weird things where I never quite had. I never quite had a day where I was able to match that again, which was really strange. <laughs> I haven't experienced that too many times where I high pointed and then struggled to to get back up there. But yeah, there's a lot of different directions we can we can go right now. Um, I guess first, I want to add a little bit more context to my program that we came up with. Um, and I'll I want to tell people that I'll put this in the show notes. So I'm actually going to share the Word document that you sent me that outlined my program. And then I think I'll share either my spreadsheet or screenshots of my Boulder Pyramid and uh, even my calendar with some of my notes and things like that for context for people. But just to break it down a little bit for people listening, we, like you said, we did Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And I think the next topic I want to dive into is how much we should be training. And I have a little quote from you it's just you think everybody climbs too much. And I, I really want to dig into that topic, but um a little context. So yeah, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday was V10 day, more or less, uh, with the second tier warm-up being in that V6, V7 range. Wednesday was like find a V7 or V8, and Friday was like V9, no hangboarding and The only other supplemental training you gave me was like a short resistance training workout to do in the evenings after climbing days. And it was really simple. It was just some sort of a overhead pressing movement. So one day I would do uh, push presses, overhead push presses. And then I would do a scapular lock off movement that, that was really helpful. And I'll share the video that you sent me of those in the show notes. But I think those helped me a lot, and then I would do some sort of a top of the forearm work, like um what is it called when you have the 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 pole with the weight on it, and you're doing this motion. What what are those called? Roll ups. I call them F- forearm roll ups or something. I call them forearm roll ups. Yeah. I would use uh, I would do those or uh, like a theraband bar exercise, and then the other day I would do declined push ups. So my feet are up on a chair and I'm doing push-ups like that. And I was, I think I was doing sets on the minute for 10 minutes and then the same scapular movement and then another forearm exercise. So it it was really simple. It was just a little bit of oppositional training. I'd love to hear how you were thinking about including all of that. Um, Yeah, let's, let's start with that actually. I guess there's one more piece of context. So the only other thing about the schedule is we were doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And we would follow that same structure for three weeks. And then the fourth week was a deload. And I would still climb Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but I would keep the intensity more like V6 max and just do some volume. And then we would kind of repeat that cycle. So that was the program. Um, Tell me uh, how you were thinking about that resistance workout and, It was interesting when we talked, you were kind of just like, yeah, do it when you feel like doing it. And I ended up just doing it on Mondays and Fridays and just alternating the workout I would do. I'd love to hear how you thought about the resistance training aspect of that and the opposition training and how that fit in.
2: Yeah. So, so again, it's, you know, we're thinking this is a primarily a performance trip. Um, so you don't want to gas yourself too much with any extra stuff. I mean, that's why we, there was no hangboarding involved, but over the course of two months, you can start getting some imbalances. That's a long enough time to where if you didn't do any push-ups or any antagonist stuff for two months, near the end of that, you're going to start noticing, or you might start noticing, you know, little tweaks here and there. So it was just enough. The idea behind it was just enough that you'd maintain some strength, maybe gain a little bit of strength, work the muscles um, a little bit so your forearm extensors. Um and you know just as an aside, when you're working, you know, one side of the muscle like your your forearms, the basic of your forearms, you're still you can do much less work on your extensors and still make gains mm. with that. So you know, when you're talking about antagonist work, if you're doing a lot of pull-ups or something like that, a couple of push presses will, in accordance with the pull-ups, will really help you with that push press gain more so than just doing those push presses alone. Interesting. So you don't need to do as much in general when you're doing some of the the climbing specific stuff. That's the kind of first side of it. And the second is really, yeah, just over the course of a month, you or two months, you could definitely start to develop some imbalances, particularly in your elbows. And you might start to get a little funky shoulders. It depends kind of where you are. I know I do, if I'm just climbing for, for two months, uh, the fronts of my shoulders start to, you know, you start to hunch over a little bit more and those start to shorten a little bit. And just doing those incline pushups is enough to kind of keep your shoulders open a little bit. Um, and then the on-the-minute part of it is leaving it up to you to really feel how hard you want to go. So instead of saying, okay, do 100 push-ups, you could say, okay, I'm going to do 10 push-ups on the minute for 10 minutes. And you're like, ooh, that was actually pretty hard. Maybe next time I'll only do five push-ups on the minute. Yeah. Or you're like kind of worked from the climbing day and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to do a couple of push-ups on the minute. And that way it leaves it up to you to how you're feeling, how hard you want to go on a mm. lot of those exercises. So on the minutes are a good way to really do how you feel that day Hmm. for the antagonist stuff. And it's not that important that you, you do it that much. That's why I was kind of like, you know, when you feel like it, um, general rule of thumb is you want to be doing something about two days a week. You're not going to really make, you're probably not going to make very much gains or even really maintain if you're much less than two days a week. So even though you might do incline push-ups on Monday and push press on uh, Friday, that's a very similar movement. You're working the same muscles. So that would be, I would consider that two days a week mm. um, in those delts and shoulders. So that's, that's the rationale behind that antagonist. If we were in the gym and this were like a full-on training program, you know, it, it would be a little different. Mm. So there'd be a little bit harder antagonist, um, a little, well, you know, there'd be probably more climbing days. You'd be feeling gassed a lot more often. Um, you'd have bad weeks where you just felt awful all week. Um, but because it was a performance trip, I wanted to try to avoid, avoid as much of that as possible.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Okay.
2: We still weren't able to avoid all of it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. I think, uh, u- user error on my part. Um, just going a little too hard on the first deload week and then paying for it later. But, uh, tell me about the scapular exercise. I think that's one that I really benefited from actually. And it's something that I plan to continue doing just that kind of minimal effective dose, um, workout that you gave me on a regular basis. Cause I, I think I really made some gains there and, and noticed that it just started feeling easier and easier, over the course of those couple months, but, um, can you describe that exercise and, and why that was an important one?
2: Yeah. So uh, yeah, hopefully you'll put that just a video of that. They're just kind of scapular lockouts. You basically do like a scap pull up with two arms, you're hanging up from a jug, do a scap pull up with two arms, let one arm go and kind of keep that locked off and then switch to the other arm, do the pull up. Um, it makes more sense by a video, but the idea with that is that it's more of a recruitment thing than a strength thing. So what we tend to do is we tend to, as climbers, for whatever reason, neglect our middle and lower traps. And we kind of just don't get those involved in our climbing and that scapular movement, you know, kind of pinning those scaps back and sort of putting them in your back pocket, so to speak, um, is a way of getting you to start recruiting that and thinking about that. And the translation it, you know, there's, yeah. So the translation of that to climbing is when you, when you're in a wide move and you look at really strong, you know, shorter climbers in particular and just watch them do wide moves from like watch their back, their shoulders just stay locked in. Mm. And, you know, they stay whenever they're climbing, their shoulders are down and they're just locked. And what that enables you to do is it enables you to connect your fingers on both sides to your core, to your feet. It's like that. If you're missing that gap in the middle, if you're not recruiting your middle and lower traps, you have no connection between your upper body and your lower body. And you're missing out on a lot of muscles that are going to help you do hard moves. Mm. And you can see, you know, with taller climbers, it, it you can see, you know, for me before I started doing it, I, I probably still do it a lot, but you know, the shoulder, the elbows start to come up and the shoulders start to go over. And a lot of that is to try to get more out of your fingers by recruiting some more of these muscles. Um, when really you need, I should be thinking about pulling those back and trying to use my core to keep me in the right position to make that hand hold a little bit better
1: Mm.
2: and that's the idea behind those scapular pull-up things um and again yeah if you put the the video it's a little bit easier for that than
0: yeah 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 i'll describe it real quick but i will add the video to the show notes and i'll explain the the workout that i did but you're you start out hanging from a bar with your shoulders kind of sagged downward and then you keep your arms straight the entire time but you shrug your shoulders or you pull your shoulders down basically into like a packed position. And then you shift your weight under one arm, let's say your right arm, and you just let go with your left hand, kind of do a quick shakeout at your side, bring your left hand back up, depress your shoulders or sag your shoulders down and do a repetition, lift your shoulders back up, lock that off at the shoulder, keeping your arm straight, drop the other hand, and then grab the bar again you do two of those on each side in one rep and then i was doing just five sets on the minute so every minute i would do those two reps and again i'll link to the to the video but yeah i was just doing those a couple days a week and i at first it felt really desperate to do that on my left side even just hanging from a bar And over the course of the couple months, I really noticed it level out and I just, I started to really feel like I could just own that engaged shoulder position hanging from a bar uh, with either hand for, for at least five seconds, it it felt really casual. So I I really noticed a difference there and it's hard to, you know, it's always hard to say how much it impacted my climbing, but it felt good and it feels like it helped and uh, it makes sense that it helps. So it's something I plan to continue doing. Yeah, and it'll, it'll also help with your one-arm hangs. So Yeah, that was really interesting. You were, you were talking about noticing some of the people that you've worked with actually improve their finger strength numbers just through working on their scapular strength.
2: Yeah, and just basically that recruitment idea, like being able to hold that position. They might have particularly strong scaps, but they just don't use them correctly. So hmm. when you're doing that one-arm hang, if you can really keep yourself packed in, like... You're gonna spin a little less. You're gonna, you know, so you'll be able to perform a little better on that hang hangboard test.
1: Hmm.
2: If you wanna game the system a little bit. <laughs> Train those scaps and not your fingers and then try to perform better on your hangboard test. <laughs> not feel so bad about yourself.
0: <laughs> okay, so I wanna I wanna zoom out a little bit and get your take on a few kind of bigger picture things and, and tie tie some of this stuff together that we've been talking about. So the first thing I want to dig into is this climbing schedule. So I was surprised that you, I think when we first talked, you recommended that I go day on, day off, and that um, you you didn't recommend climbing any more than that. And I really like having a weekly schedule these days with the podcast. It's really helpful to know that I can for instance, always schedule an interview on a Thursday and not have to worry about whether I'm going to climb or not. So I, I asked if a Monday, Wednesday, Friday would work, and I was surprised, and I think you said that that's almost exactly what you do. I think you said you do Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday as you're climbing or your training days, and... I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember you saying like everybody climbs too much and uh, you really like the three day a week or day on day off schedule for people. Can you speak to that? Um, I, this is a question I've been really fascinated with lately because so many of the pros seem to just climb all the time, five days a week or more. And I've been really curious about this question, you know, to what extent should we be trying to train ourselves to improve our capacity to be able to climb more days in a week because climbing is such a skill sport, because there's so many things to learn, uh, because so many great climbers do seem to climb more days a week. How do you think about that versus climbing less days, keeping the intensity higher, having really high quality sessions? Yeah, How, how are you thinking about that these days?
2: Yeah, so I think there's a few things there. One, if we look at a lot of pro climbers, they might either be young, which is, you know, that's going to help with your recovery. Um, And two, they might've been climbing for a long time. So they've got this really big base um, that they developed when they were young. And then three, it goes back to the, by default rule, they're probably not working at their maximum that much during a week. I mean, they might be climbing a V13 or something like that, but it's not their maximum. So, you know, so again, that would be like you going out and maybe climbing on it, like doing a V7, warming up to a V7. Um, we look at them, we're like, whoa, they just did that V13, like crazy, but you know, that's around 80% of their max. So they're not going as hard as someone else might be. And so if we translate it to, for example, like for if I want to go out and I, you know, go up to Little Cottonwood, I could go out and climb on. You know, grand illusion three days a week at v16 <laughs> i have that opportunity to do that and it's i'm not going to get anywhere i'm going to destroy myself but if i'm already if i'm a v16 v17 climber you might spend a day on that and then you can go and do easier stuff like mm. i so what happens when we're not climbing at the pro level is we have all of this opportunity to overreach on these boulder problems Hmm. because they're all over the place. Like you could have spent, you know, you could have gone out every day in Waco and climbed a boulder or climbed on a boulder problem that was, you know, five grades above your maximum if you wanted to. Right. Uh, (laughs) Pro climbers, like we were talking about before, like they, boulders don't really have the opportunity to go out and climb on a V20. (laughs) So So they don't. Right. So when it comes down for us folks who really have to restrict ourselves from climbing on stuff that's way too hard for us and getting way too deep into the, into the recovery pit, um, that's where the three-day-a-week thing comes into play. And, you know, for most of us, you know, recovery is also a, you know, that's, there's a lot of genetics involved there. And, you know, the best climbers in the world are, yeah, the best climbers for, because they have strong fingers, because they're a certain body size, what have you, what have you. But a lot of them also, you know, have the genetics that allows them to be trainable, that allows them to recover more quickly. Mm. Um, And you get that, you know, you look at, so pro cyclists, for example, in these grand tours, you know, you can have the person who's got the biggest VO2 max and can put out the most power in a 20 minute power test. But if they don't have the recovery genetics, they're going to be cooked on day two of a 20 day tour. Mm -hmm. And, but the person who may be a little bit worse on a lot of things, but has these genetics that just allow them to recover is going to be able to do that. And I've seen this, you know, again, going back over the years, I know a few people that have that ability. They can just go out and climb at their maximum five days a week. And they've been doing it since they were, you know, in their early teens. And over the course of time, they end up with way more experience and way more quality training days than, say, I would, simply because they have this really tremendous recovery ability. Hmm. Um, But most of us are not that way. So most of us don't have that. Most of us haven't been climbing 514 since we were 11. And so we don't have that background and we might not have those genes either. So that's where the three day a week. And then there's the other, the additional component that just because this person is able to climb V16 and they climb five days a week, what would happen if they only climbed three days a week? Could they be climbing the V18? You know, maybe they're actually functioning at 80% of their max because they're constantly tired. It's just that 80% is so ridiculously high. We think they're crushing V15s when really, if they got proper rest, they'd be crushing V18s. And I would say that I would argue that point.
0: Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. When we were talking about this uh, a few weeks ago, I couldn't help but think of Ethan Pringle. I've had a chance to climb with him quite a bit in the last uh, six months. Um, in rifle and then some bouldering around the front range and it's amazing how many days he climbs he's just constantly going climbing but i stopped and thought about it and, and you're totally right and it totally fits i mean when he's bouldering he's very rarely trying harder than v12 because of access there's just not that many hard things around maybe v13 but he's climbed v15 and then when he goes sport climbing the vast majority of the time he's projecting like 14C or easier, maybe 14D, but he's climbed 15B. So it really does fit, you know? And I was kind of applying that to myself and I'm like, yeah, if I if I never tried anything harder than 13A or V7 or maybe V8, I could climb a hell of a lot of days a week and maintain that level. But I'm curious, I mean, you know, to your point, like what would happen if someone like him climbed fewer days uh and and spent more time on like the 515s it's i'm curious about the opposite like what would happen if someone like me and i think i've done this in the past so maybe it's not even maybe it's a moot point but i'm curious what your thoughts are like what do you think about someone like me kind of putting this um kind of putting this cap on on the difficulty that i try you know, climbing five days a week, but keeping things in that V7 or V8 range as a max and keeping things in that 13A, 13B range as a max, just to get more climbs under my belt, to get more experience, kind of like imitating the pro climber and just scaling it. You know, that's such an amazing thing about climbing is that we can scale all this stuff with these grades. What do you think about thinking it in that opposite way? Is there any... Is that a compelling argument or I, I don't know? What, have you experimented with that? Have you seen people try that? What do you think?
2: Yeah, so a few things there. One is that is kind of what you were doing. So like when you think about how you were scheduling out your week, it was really only one day a week at your max and then two days a week, sub max. Um, so that was only three days a week. And it was that two day a week, that two day rest day was really to allow you to be in top form on that Monday. Hmm. Um, so so there's that side of it. And then the other side, if you were to say, reverse that and climb V6, V7, five days a week, you'd get really good at climbing V6 and V7 tired. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: you, know, um, you could probably go out and do a huge day and do like 20 V7s or something like that, if that's, if that's the goal uh but you're you know it's not i i would contend that it's not going to help your top end Mm. and when you talk about a guy like say ethan like he's he's still on v12 so like v12 is still doing hard moves so his muscles are getting taxed in a way that's you know promoting strength gains and if he's on a 14c like that's still going to have hard moves and the endurance is going to be hard. He's still going to be taxing his muscles, probably not as much. um, But he's still, you know, you're still doing, doing work to those muscles. It's just his high end is so much higher that he's able to, to kind of maintain that level. Hmm. And, you know, it's also, it's, we, we think about as being relative, but like a V 12, the moves on a V 12 for just about anybody or or really anybody, I mean, they, they're still going to be hard on your muscles. There's still like, even if you're a V 15 climber, whereas the moves on a V seven or a V six might not be as hard on your muscles. If you're a V 10 climber, that's interesting you know just in the same it doesn't it's not a linear transformation as you go up when you start getting into the V12 range like moves get hard um on your muscles so you're approaching you're getting closer to human to maximum mm. and on a V6 it might be like you know i mean you could get a couple of hard like moonboard style V6s uh that you're on but you know a lot of times the holds are going to be pretty decent and You know, you'll be able to get a knee bar in there somewhere or kind of like technique it a little bit. Hmm. And you know, that that doesn't happen when you start getting into the V12 to V13 range all the time.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting idea. Hmm.
2: So I guess guess the answer to the question is like, if you get to that level, that elite level, you can operate at a lower percentage though still taxing your muscles highly. And that's just going to keep perpetuating those gains. Mm. So that's going to keep making that elite person just get even stronger and stronger and stronger. Whereas those of us in the non-elite zone, we just can't get over that hump. Hmm. And we're kind of stuck having to to rest a little bit more.
0: Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting... Really interesting idea. And maybe you can get over that. I mean, I'm not saying you can't get it.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, you're, you're doomed forever to never be able to <laughs> climb D15. I'm still in for it. I don't know how, how, how realistic that's going to be, but still. Uh, yeah. So I, I just think, yeah, I think even in that case, a lot of pro climbers would do a lot harder stuff if they climbed less.
0: mm so I want to I mean maybe we already covered this you mentioned the genetic component and that you and that you've climbed with people that just seem to be able to climb at their max 5 days a week but I I I am curious about that other side of it and I wonder what you have observed through some of the people that you've climbed with because when I and and who knows you know it's really difficult to tell um what's really happening versus what is portrayed in media um, YouTube channels like Mellow Climbing, but when I observe what like Jimmy Webb and Daniel Woods and Nale are doing, at least through what they share on social media, it really seems as though they spend at least certain chunks of time just hammering something that's absolutely at their limit. And it's it's just fascinating to me that they can just climb on something. You know, Daniel just did uh, the low start to Sleepwalker first V seventeen. And it sounds like he was just going day on day off on Sleepwalker and not really climbing on anything else and just doing lap after lap on the stand start of this V16 and and just uh, throwing himself at this V17 project. What do you think about that? I mean, that flip side of it of just, it it is kind of like the going into the weight gym and just trying to do a one rep max deadlift and not being able to do it and just going back after a rest day and trying again and again and again. Um, but of course, climbing is a little more complicated than that. You're doing a lot more moves successfully and just failing to string it all together. Um, yeah. How do you reconcile what we seem to observe from some of those top performers in bouldering?
2: I would reconcile by saying, who's to say he couldn't have done it quicker if he had only (laughs) gone out there one day a week and, uh, (laughs) you know, interesting, um, I I do think, you know, just physiologically speaking, when you look at other sports that have such a large strength component, you know, powerlifting, things like that, like those guys hardly ever go at a hundred percent, you know, you look at the really big deadlifters like they, if they do a dead, like they go a hundred percent deadlift, they're not going to do a deadlift close to that for another couple of months. You know, it's like one day a year they go big. Um, And there's a little difference. If you weigh 450 pounds and you're deadlifting 1,100 pounds, that's going to have a pretty big central nervous system component to it. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, on the climbing side of it, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I just think, you know, a guy like Daniel is so strong that B-17 might be like 80%. Damn. <laughs> you know, so it's like... it's quite a statement. <laughs> you know, and it's, you know, maybe that's the case. Um, or he could have, you know, he could have... the He's been climbing really hard for a long time
0: and he might have some
2: good genes in there that enable him to do
0: it. Hmm. There are definitely some confounding factors with climbing. I mean, that's what makes it such a fascinating sport. There is the skill component. And I imagine that you know, you can kind of make up for some of that persistent fatigue by just getting so damn good at that specific set of moves that you can, you can overcome. I mean, it seems like that's what a lot of high level climbers do. They just get so incredibly efficient at that set of moves that, you know, maybe they don't need to be a hundred percent at their peak physically to pull it off. Right.
2: And I think, yeah, I mean, that's probably the case. I mean, a lot of times we'll do You know, you do a Boulder problem a little bit later on in the day when theoretically you shouldn't. You're you're weaker Mm. after your tenth try, but you learn the moves enough to to be able to do it at a sub. You know, to reduce the difficulty of the moves. And I would say also, you know, again with the Dango thing, I think about how many people you know that have gone out there and hammered themselves on the V12. Three days a week, four days a week, five days a week for years on end, mm. and never did it. You know, and that's that's what is. I see a lot more of that sort of thing going on.
0: That's that's a really good point, and
2: that's where like the root pyramid comes into play. Like, you know, do a couple more of the elevens, the tens, and you know, go that way.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. So one thing I will say is, I I really liked the schedule, and uh, you know, it f- I was really excited about it because it does really fit well with what I'm doing with the podcast. I like having a routine, um, but it is interesting. I mean, like we referred to earlier, that first deload week, I just kind of went crazy and tried to see how many V6s I could do. And it didn't turn out to be that much of a deload week because it turns out V6 can be pretty hard when you're trying to do it in a few tries and it's a, you know, weird one or whatever. But yeah, I really liked that program. And at first I was curious, I was skeptical maybe, or just curious if I was climbing enough or, you know, quote, training enough. But I think despite only climbing three days a week, because Waco is so physical, I think I still actually ended up overtraining a little bit, and when I kind of zoom out and look at my calendar over the the couple months I was there, I did have these kind of interesting ebbs and flows where I'd ramp up and feel really good, and then I think that deload uh, wasn't quite enough of a deload. I climbed really well the week after that, but then the following weeks, um, I got a finger tweak. I just started feeling really run down. I had to take some time off then I did well again. And then I got sick. It was just kind of, you know, all the signs of a little bit of overtraining and, and not recovered enough. So it was fascinating to climb just three days a week for a couple months and, and realize in hindsight, like, huh, I think I still actually went a little bit too hard and could have used a little bit more rest.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think that deload week, um, is really key. The deload week and and we all do it, you know, it's like you, you're feeling good. That's really when it starts to kick in. You're like, Oh man, I feel so good. And you know, he's telling me to go easy this week. Like <laughs> I'm going hard. <laughs> like, okay. I'm only going to do V six, but I'm going to do 20 of them or whatever it was. Yeah. Uh, and it, it doesn't generally kick in to, like immediately. It's more a couple of, you know, a week or so later and what you can, what's even worse. Like you were, you know, well, you got out of a little finger being there and just felt a little rundown for a little while. But when you start eliminating that deload week for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks on end, you really dig a deep hole. And, you know, that's when people kind of go out for like a whole season or they get some bad injuries or things just get really bad. And you see a real downward spiral if you miss that deload week. And that can happen to, you know, that can, you know, luckily it seems like a lot of pro climbers are getting smarter about that. Maybe just, or unintentionally doing it, uh, taking deload weeks with travel and things like that, and having to do various things for climbing. Um, but you know, that can be a danger. If if all you're doing, all you have to do is climb, you're going to try, it's our default to just go hard all the time. Mm. And over the years that, you know, I've seen some people dig some pretty serious holes Mm. doing that and you know you get the chronic fatigue stuff and you know they it lasts for a while so you know the one week the deload thing is is good for a performance phase a two-month performance phase but it's also good to think about long term like you know every month do an easy week Mm. like it's you're not gonna you're gonna gain strength i mean you're gonna Actually, improve. Like you, you don't get stronger when you're training. You get stronger when you're re- after you recover. So mm-hmm. you get stronger when you're resting. And if we think about it like that, those deload weeks are like, ooh, this is a, a strength week. I'm going to be so strong at the end of this week. <laughs> I'm going to be crushing. Um, and maybe if you think about that way, you're more likely to take that deload week.
0: I like that. <laughs> I like that. So I want to dig into a couple more questions about the bouldering pyramid. So for for people listening, I will share uh, at least a screenshot of my pyramid from Waco in the show notes. I ended up finishing the V10 pyramid and making some progress on the V11 pyramid. But um, I'd love to hear, a, I guess, a couple things. First off, it's interesting that you kind of build your pyramid that's that's really like an exponential shape. So for for at least what we did, uh, and you mentioned this earlier, but one V10. Uh, at the top of the pyramid is how we started out and then two v9s four v8s uh eight v7s and 16 v6s and uh i'm curious what the rationale is there in doubling each layer as you go down because that makes a you know pretty big exponential shape and that's a lot of v6s to do versus just doing i don't know one v10 a couple v9s three v8s you know just just what am I trying to say here? I'm, I'm curious what the rationale is on the exponential pyramid and doing twice as many of each subsequent grade. Um, is that arbitrary? Is that something you've, you've experimented with? What are your thoughts on that?
2: It's, it's pretty much arbitrary, okay. um, particularly when you get down to like the four grades below. Really the key component I think is two grades at a max grade two problems at a max grade before moving up and then roughly four grades, one down. That's kind of your, that's, that's I think the important part for progressing in the grades. And then the one grade further down is then that strength zone where I'm, what I'm calling the strength zone. And that's where I think we should be spending most of our time anyway. Mm. So by putting, you know, a lot of V eights in there, uh, or, maybe more V eights than V nines that would incentivize climbing more on V eights. You know, when you start getting down to the V sixes, it's like, yeah, okay, whatever. You didn't do 16 of them or what what have you. Um, that's not a huge deal. Um, it's really that kind of that strength zone that I'm kind of going for. And it's the top three Hmm. and the most important one I think is the top one and the second down. So in your case, getting two V nines, I mean, uh, two V10s and like four V9s before moving on. Got it. To V11. Okay. And, you know, that can carry through. Like if you go, like we were talking, if you go to Rocky Mountain or something this summer and you don't boulder all spring, you can pretty much carry this this boulder pyramid through. You know, like you can, for the most part, you know, as long as you don't take like two months off or something like that, you can consider yourself ready to start going for V11s. Maybe when you get to Rocky, like bang out a couple of nines, then start hitting your 11.
0: Yeah. So I I was about to ask about that. I really, I really like that about this approach. Um, It kind of builds in some auto regulation, you know, it's just, it's, it's some accountability to spend some time in that grade range. That's going to build the momentum to do the hard thing. And I was also really drawn to this idea that I can just continue to build on it and build on it. So after, Um, and it's it'll be easier to understand this in a visual, but after finishing the V10 pyramid, I was able to carry all of those boxes that I would checked into the V11 pyramid and just continue and, and keep moving forward with that. Um, but yeah, maybe elaborate on, on what you just shared. So how, how can I think about growing this pyramid and continue, continuing to work up the grade season on season from this point forward? Yeah.
2: So I think, you know, the pyramid, it's sort of like, it is a long-term thing and, uh, you know, you can carry it with you as you, as you go. Um, and generally, you know, you kind of make adjustments for where you are going into your performance phase. So for example, like I said, if you take two months off and you're going into a performance phase, you might want to kind of start over a little bit from scratch. Like you might want to try to get another V10 or something in there um, and a couple of V9s and some V8s and V7s and V6s before moving on to a V11. Um, but if you're pretty much going straight through, then, you know, you can kind of carry it with you over time. And the idea is you just kind of keep building things, building it out and kind of keeping it that pyramid shape. And you, you can stop worrying about it when you, you know much four or five grades below your max it's not so important Mm. um, to keep building it out Uh, but you really want to keep that top portion three to four rows on top to be really pyramid-esque and yeah just carry it through from season to season got it so next year if you go back to waco you know probably a little bit of a training period going in but you can really kind of keep the v10 you can keep your pyramid that you have right now, mm. provided you don't take a whole bunch of time off between now and then.
0: Yeah, so you and I had a call a few weeks ago and what we had talked about doing, I'm planning on just sport climbing for the next couple months um, and then maybe doing a training cycle in June, leading up to some time in Rocky Mountain and bouldering again. And what we had talked about was just primarily focusing on sport climbing for the next couple months, but maybe having just one day a week or even one day every other week where I either go bouldering or add a gym session and do some moonboarding or something, or even just find a really hard route to kind of do some power training on, uh, just to, just to do a little bit of maintenance and maintain that power over the next couple months so that I can just go right back into another bouldering phase and continue building on what I gained from this time in Waco.
2: Yeah, so I think that's important. I, and I like the, the choice of words there is power, maintaining the power as opposed to necessarily strength. Um, and you can maintain power. The, the difference is kind of like the power, when you think about it with climbing, it's a, it's a speed component. So we also think about contact strength, the ability to recruit all the proper muscle fibers in your body to do a particular move. It's a more of a coordination thing, power is, than you need the strength to have the high power, but you know the power is more of a coordination thing, and you can keep that with one day a week. You know, like you, which and it requires you know doing hard moves. So either you know a shortish. You don't want to go too deep, so you go shorter, high intensity, you know, woody session, moonboard session, or you know the traditional way has been to get on a route that's you know hard and bouldery for you and kind of bolt to bolt it um or go bouldering if you if you have that option spend a day bouldering mm. um and you know if you're going bouldering like i would suggest again you know it's that 80 percent zone like if you go bouldering look for v8s if you're climbing on a moonboard, go for about two grades below your max and try to get some volume in on those one day a week and you should maintain that snap and you should pretty quickly be able to, well, one, re-up it when bouldering comes around. But two, you know, for some root, for roots you need that in some cases. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to be bouldering fairly hard, particularly when you start getting up into the, you know, the
0: 514s. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is an interesting topic. I, I had asked you at the start of my bouldering season in Waco whether or not I should put any... In- put any effort into maintaining my endurance over the course of the couple months there, I was thinking, you know, should I do a, like an aerobic endurance session once per week? Um, do any like repeaters on the hangboard or find easy boulders to do laps on, or even try to find a way to go sport climbing. Um, and you discourage that you, you, um, yeah, I'd love to hear how you, how you think about that these days. It, It sounds like, we had talked about these kind of two schools of thought and how you've kind of shifted shifted your thinking away from maintaining aerobic capacity while focusing on strength and power. Can you elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, so I, I think you have two different situations. So one, when you go into a sport climbing performance phase, uh, you want to maintain that power. So you you want to be to keep that power somehow, and you're going to lose that because sport climbing just involves generally less of that power. You're going to be able to maintain a lot of your basic strengths like finger strength and stuff, because the holds are going to be still fairly small. Um, But when you go in reverse, when you go on a bouldering trip, whenever you work on, well, let's take the extreme, like an aerobic capacity type thing. Like when I say aerobic capacity, I mean like a long duration, five minute on the wall type thing. Uh, that's going to slow you down. That's going to convince your muscles to fire less quickly to recruit less. You're going to slow your body down. And that's, that's why I discouraged that type of, of training. Now an anaerobic capacity day you could do, but that would be more like that was basically your volume day. So your, your Wednesdays were kind of an anaerobic capacity day.
1: Mm.
2: And that is, that is necessary, particularly in a place like Waco, where you kind of need a little bit of that. You need a little bit of fitness because the problems are reasonably long. Um, So, yeah, so I I would discourage the full on that root fitness where you can kind of like hit a jug and get it all back and shake out. Um, That's going to, it's going to basically slow you down. Now, there are ways you can train. So interestingly, so some of the kind of more recent stuff coming out is that we uh, i participated a little bit in one of these studies. Um, When we're doing really hard moves, uh, we're a lot aerobic. So we are actually using our aerobic system way more doing hard bouldering moves than we used to think. Hmm. Um, But it's a different, I contend that it's a slightly different form we use it a different way and it's not that long duration five minutes on the wall at a low pace it's more like doing you know i i think the best way to train that style is to do like a moon board problem on the minute for 10 minutes okay so you could train your aerobic system and what that's doing is the aerobic system is producing you know phosphagen creatine so we're actually using that to do these hard moves more so than we used to think um and so, what you could you could do a day like that in a place like Waco, where you'd find something like maybe a V four that's kind of shortish, a um, couple of hard moves, and you don't top it out, and just do four or five moves on the minute for ten minutes. That would be a way to incorporate that. Hmm. But really, you know, the gain for that is going to be with your bouldering just as much as it is with your sport climbing. And I think what I'm discouraging is really trying to maintain that root fitness while you're bouldering
0: Yeah, because it it will kind of slow you down got it yeah so to to summarize what i've taken from this i think when i go on bouldering trips in the future i'm going to do what i did in waco and just not worry about maintaining the fitness side of it not trying to add in any arcing or anything but then when i switch back to routes really make an effort to maintain the power that i gained from the bouldering and what's been really cool, I've, I've been in St. George now for a couple of weeks. Uh, I've been really pleasantly surprised with my fitness, actually. And I think just bouldering in Waco in particular, there's a lot of kind of power endurance steep boulders there. And without even really meaning to, I think I maintained a lot of my fitness. And, you know, I I, I noticed the first couple of days of sport climbing again, it was more just having to remind myself how to flow and relax and be efficient, but my Pump and fitness were actually pretty good and I'm, I'm pretty pleasantly surprised with how much maintained from just bouldering so that's yeah, it's yeah cool, so you're pretty cool
2: yeah and i think a lot of that is kind of a, probably the anaerobic capacity from the bouldering and also maybe you've gotten stronger uh your climbing strength has increased so then a route is going to be a lower percentage of your max. a move on a route is going to be a lower percentage of your maximum so it's if you're able to get that relaxation part of it dialed in again, um, you'll find that you'll be able, you'll feel as though you're more fit, but basically you're just climbing at a, a lower percentage of your maximum than you you used to be on that same type of route, on that
0: sure. same
1: difficulty to move.
0: Yeah. Okay, I wanna ask about the plus and minus day. This is something we haven't talked about at all, and I, am so i was so interested in it and i've i think it's been a really cool thing and it's another thing that i plan to continue doing um this is something that you told me about in our first conversation leading up to you know starting out in waco and basically i every single day that i climbed i made notes about what i climbed and then at the end of taking the notes and everything i just had to Ascribe either a plus or a minus to that day. Can you tell me about, about how you're thinking about that and and where that came from?
2: Yeah. So the plus minus system, the idea behind that is it allow it it forces you to not rationalize, you know, why you had a bad day or something like that. Or, you know, you're like, oh, I felt great, but I didn't do anything that I wanted to do. And you know that's okay well that's not a plus day if you didn't do anything you wanted to do it's not going to be a plus day and by just keeping it simple as a plus or a minus it it gets you to to not do that rationalization and the key point with this is really over the long term so if you do plus minuses every time you train every time you go climbing you can then look back over a year and you can see where oh look i had five pluses in a row, then I had four minuses in a row. Oh, look, I had this stressful, heinous two weeks of work. And I had all these minus days in there. And just and then I had minus days for like a month after that. (laughs) Over time, years and years and years, you start to see your own sort of biorhythms, And you can start planning ahead. So you're like, okay, I typically like say for you, if you notice over the course of the year, you kept with the Monday, Wednesday, Friday thing, you're like, Wednesdays I, I was minus day after minus day after minus day when you go into training or when you go into climbing or doing something you're not going to do shoot for a high quality day on that Wednesday if mm. you're typically just kind of if you notice that you get a lot of minuses on that Wednesday so you would adjust your training to be more like maybe an easy volume day or maybe you just take two rest days and, and switch up your schedule so the plus minus system it becomes informative over time and you can really look back on your, your climbing performance phases and training phases to get a feel for when you should really be going hard and when you should be easing off and when you're overreaching, when you're, you know, doing, you know, you can really get a feel for it. And yeah, and it's hard for people to do because I mean, I know and you were like that as well. It's like, oh, I felt great, but you know, I didn't do it. Didn't do, you know, you felt you, I forget the day. I think it was like, you couldn't do a V6, but you're like, oh, I almost did it first try. And then I couldn't do it. And then, but this V7 was really hard and you have all of this in your notes and I'm just like, it, it was a minus day, just accept the fact that you just weren't on on 100% that day.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, I found it surprisingly difficult. So I was just trying to ascribe a, either a plus or minus purely based on how I performed that day is the way I understand it. But it gets, it gets surprisingly complicated because some days, you know, if I tried something new that I hadn't tried before and felt like I got really close on like a V9 in a session, that might be a plus day. Whereas like you come back, a couple days later, and you kind of feel like shit, but your beta's dialed, so you squeak it out, but then you kind of can tell that you're powered down. You know, that was where I I had a really hard time knowing what to what to call that kind of a a day, you know, is the first day a minus because I didn't send, and the second day a plus, or vice versa. So <laughs> it, it is a little bit tricky. Um, do you have any thoughts on on that, on some of the nuance there?
2: Well, yeah, there's some subjectivity to it, so like for that particular example, I would say, okay, if you didn't do a v nine in a day, that doesn't necessarily warrant a minus um, if you didn't do a v six, I would say for you, that would be a minus like you know, and then you know, even a v seven that would be a unless you stop you're like that was a, that was a stupid problem. I just don't want to do that one. that doesn't necessarily warrant a minus, so it's really being within kind of knowing yourself and where you are and it gets a little tricky when you start getting up closer to your max like on a v10 or a v9 day then it becomes a little bit more how did i feel that day Hmm. but for example like when you did i remember with theater your first day on it you said you felt really strong and you fell off the end i think yeah and then when you ended up actually doing it you said you felt weaker than the first day That's an example where you're like, okay, that was still a plus day. You did Mm. a V10, that's going to be a plus day for you, even though you felt crappy. Mm. Um, where it gets a little bit vague is like, okay, I was expecting to do this V8 today and I didn't do it. Is that a plus or a minus? And then you kind of have to dig into your psyche and (laughs) <laughs> decide what it was yeah, and kind of know where you are. You have to be okay with being like, okay, maybe I'm not climbing V V8 in a day.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, that's, that's okay. It can still be a plus day. Um, but at a certain point, like, and I think for you, it's like B6, V 7 if you really go after it and try to do it, you should, you should be doing those mm-hmm. in a, pretty quickly in a session. And that if you don't, that warrants a minus for whatever reason.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So for people listening, I think I'll share the calendar, like I said, but I just, I, I would put a plus or minus and I ended up just color coding. My plus days is green on the calendar and my minus days is red. And it really is just amazingly helpful to look back at this, like 10 weeks of training and see the colors and, and see these patterns, you know, like I, I know rationally that the deload is important, but it is amazingly hard to take a deload seriously, especially when you're only climbing three days a week and you're in somewhere, you know, you're in a place like Waco with all these amazing climbs to do, but looking at the patterns, I'm like, damn, I really paid for that. And I can see all those reds, you know, I can see some greens like in the week after that. Cause I think I. Peaked up my fitness a little bit, ran around like a crazy man, just trying to climb all these things and then climbed really well for a week, but then paid for it. And I think the next two or three weeks had a lot of reds. And uh, just as far as, just as far as that goes, I th- I think it's really helpful to help internalize that message of like, okay, I need to take these deloads seriously um, because I can, I can see it. I can see how I paid for it later on. So yeah, it's, it's a really cool simple thing. But I, like I said, I think I plan to continue doing it over the long haul. I think it's a really cool trick.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I tell everybody I advise doing that and it's, and particularly when you start getting into, like, if you were to do a proper training cycle where you're probably going to be climbing more than three days a week, um, and you're going to have rough weeks, it's good to know when to expect those globally like you start to realize like oh okay if i do whatever three hangboard workouts in a week i'm gonna be climbing like shit on the board for that next week and you see that you see three pluses on your hangboard days and then the next week you're supposed to be on the board and you see three minuses or four minuses whatever Um, then you know later on going into that cycle again what you would expect on that minus week is you would maybe do more volume on easier problems mm. so you would adjust your training based on your pluses and minuses and where you personally how you personally function mm. so it might be different for some people you know some people might you know have three solid weeks of pluses and then four solid weeks of minuses uh, you know so it, it depends Some Mm. people might have a a plus day then the second day on, or might have a minus day, then the second day on they're a plus. Mm. And there's you know, there's a case to be made for that. So it's just kind of getting to know how your body
0: recovers. So I want to zoom out a little bit and get your take on how you're thinking about using climbing for training versus these training blocks. In a more global sense. So something that I asked you about when I approached you in uh, in the first place, after talking with John, is that you know I, I was going on this trip to Waco. I did want to send some things, but I do ultimately want to think about my own climbing with this longer lens, and try to level up to V twelve over the next you know couple years, few years, however long it takes, and then apply that to harder and harder sport climbs and ultimately towards this goal I have of trying to do just do it at Smith Rock. And, uh, you know, I live on the road. I live in a van. I have the opportunity to do a lot of my, you know, quote, training through climbing outdoors in places like Waco or whatever's in season. I plan to do some more bouldering in Rocky Mountain this summer, but, um, I'm also willing to, you know, find a place and pay for a, a gym membership for a month or two and do some focused training. I, I really enjoy training. It's been a while since I've done a training block and and yeah, that's something I'm interested in as well. So, you know, given all of your experience with training for yourself, the people that you've worked with, and then also this observation of all these really strong climbers that you've, that you've observed over the years, you know, the boulders in the nineties, like Fred, um, that probably didn't do these training cycles. How are you thinking about the balance of those things now? And maybe what would be ideal for me, you know, with this longer approach towards these bigger goals that I have?
2: Yeah. So uh, again, a few things with that, you know, one is we like to, we tend to think that, you know, people, oh they just go climbing, like, you know, they, they do, but because they're climbing so hard they're unintentionally varying the intensity of their climbing and by that that's the example of you know like if daniel shows up in little cottonwood like he doesn't have too many v17s to go and run around on he's got you know he just did a new v11 up there the other day um that was a project and it's like he's you know it's probably his second stage warm-up so he is what I'm trying to do with climbing is take what these elite climbers and boulders are doing unintentionally and make it intentional. Mm. So that's kind of how I structure that. And I think it's really the key, the two main components there are your in a couple of day max, and then your two grades down. I think those are your two areas where you want to kind of start your foundation. So if you think about your training week, your two variables are volume and intensity. So you can have a day in a training week where you would maybe do. And I, I, you know, at a gym, it's hard. This is hard to sometimes do on a gym. It works a lot better on the boards. Any pick any board you want.
0: Well, yeah. And that, that's actually, that's actually what I meant, you know, like find a gym that has a moon board and just do, do a cycle that's a little more similar to what John was describing. Yeah. When I talked with him.
2: Yeah. So. Yeah. So that's, so yeah, you want to do that on a board. It doesn't have to be a moon board. It's just the thing with the board is that it's not that many moves. It's a really consistent style. The holds are really similar. So, and I like the moon board for this, for this reason in particular is that even if you're on something that's easy for you, you still just the way the holds work, you still have to use the same core tension, the same contact strength, the same, pull, just brute pull force strength as you would on something that's really hard for you. So that makes it real easy to manipulate your intensity variable in your climbing. So you can get yourself, let's say you go onto the board and you're doing a, let's just keep the number simple, like a V 10 as your max in a day. Now, you know, your V eights on the moon board, that's your strength zone. And then you're going to be doing your volumes, uh, volume on like V sixes and V sevens. So that's your basic sort of platform there. That's your that's your table, I guess. And then you work from there on different workouts. So for, you know, for example, one workout would be a, a strength workout where you might do uh, if your max is V ten, uh, you might do warm up do a V9, try a V9, uh, try two V10s, and then a V9. That's a good strength day. And the idea at the end of that day is you probably didn't do either of the V10s, you hopefully did the V9s, and then next time you go in, you're going to try two, those two V9s, or two different V9s, and then maybe do one of the V10s, And you're slowly building your pyramid up so that eventually your top of your pyramid now on the board is like V11 or maybe in John's case, V12. And you've got this nicely formed pyramid below it that you've been building on top of. Hmm. And that would be a strength day. Or you might choose to do a volume day, which might be like uh, five V6s, um, five V7s and five V6s. So there you're still functioning at a strength level because on the board, a V6 is going to require uh, contact strength, body tension, all that stuff, little snappiness. Um, So you're still training strength, but you're training a different, more of a volume style strength. So you might pair that volume day, at the beginning of that volume day, that might be your hangboard day. So you might hang at the beginning of that volume day, and then go and do your volume and then that is your strength day whereas on your max bouldering day you wouldn't want to hang right Mm. before that because that's going to affect your maximum bouldering and you also wouldn't want to do that maximum bouldering immediately after a hang day so that's kind of i guess that's sort of where where i would go with that and then you know you have your different workouts all based on changing your yeah your, your volume and intensity levels so you might do on the minutes on v4 you know at the end of every day you might do 10 minutes of on the minutes on a v4 and so you do a v4 the same v4 can be every minute for 10 minutes and that's going to train that aerobic capacity the bouldering style of aerobic capacity and then you know you might do an anaerobic capacity day I wouldn't recommend this so much for bouldering, but for root climbing, which would be an up, down, up on the board. So that would be something you'd have to drop um, at least two, if not, depending on the person, down to, you know, four grades below your max. So it's a way of structuring this whole quantification idea is a way of structuring uh, climbing Quantifying climbing so you can adjust the variables appropriately instead of saying, okay, pick three problems that you can flash and do that for the day. Like, you know, I mean, what, what is a flash grade relative to your maximum grade? I mean, I like some people might flash what they can do as a max. Other people like me (laughs) suck at flashing stuff. So it's like my flash grade drops me way down and i'd be training at a suboptimal level if i took that oh just do a flash grade or you know go in and do a problem that you know is kind of hard for you but you know you can do is sort of traditionally been the way i you know would explain that whereas now i would say a problem that's kind of hard for you that you can do is going to be a problem 2 grades below your max
1: hmm.
2: so if you can't do the workout that's five problems at three grades below max five problems at two grades below max five problems at three grades below max you've estimated your max at too high a level Mm. so you'd want to you then need to bump that down so if you tested it on a moon board you might have gotten lucky and gotten one that fit fit you it's like maybe you're tall and it's a big jump move you're like oh i just did an 8 a m8a (laughs) and then you go and try to do a workout that's like five seven b pluses, five seven c's, and five, seven b pluses, and you can't do any of them. Uh that's an example of where, well, okay, you're not climbing eight A on the board. Mm. <laughs> okay. <do> that worked out. <laughs> Got it. Um so yeah. So I mean I guess that's kind of that's where I'm going with with that idea of the the 85%. And the 85%, like I said earlier, it's kind of arbitrary. But in my experience, um, both myself observing, you know, elite climbers around the world, like that's, they spend a lot of time around two grades below, below max.
1: Mm.
2: I mean, Daniel wasn't out there climbing V 17s all that time, but you know, he does a hell of a lot of V 15s and V 14s and that's, you know, that's his strength zone. And, you know, he's And if you look at it, like, you know, like I said, like go to 8A and look at all time on the bouldering and go to the top 100. And you'll see that right now in our current grade range, you know, it's really these guys have been doing like in the hundreds of, you know, 8A to 8Bs because that's the most really there's a lot of those around the world to do. Which is for a V15 climber, you know, gets them in their 70 to 80 something percent max range, and as we start seeing more 8C plus boulder problems coming out, that's just going to give people more of an opportunity to work strength who are 9A plus boulders, mm. and you know, and it's going to that's so the grades are going to keep progressing, obviously up to certain point. I don't know what that point is going to be, but it it takes having a good amount of problems that are two grades below the current max for the grades to progress and it's also two grades below the current max for you as a person as a climber to progress whatever your max is
1: Mm.
0: yeah that all that all makes sense um one thing i really want to get at here for myself though i'm really curious about about this based on what you've observed in other climbers is You know, I have this unique opportunity to be able to take this methodology and add some structure to my outdoor climbing. Um, Like we did in Waco, I can kind of do a similar thing with my sport climbing and then I can, you know, continue this Boulder Pyramid in Rocky Mountain this summer. But, you know, you and I did a, a strength assessment before I started in Waco. You sent me some things to do and I did some finger strength testing. Uh, You've seen my numbers. You've seen how I performed in Waco. um, You know my longer term goals. I guess, how important do you think it is for me to take some chunks of the year where I do like this focused board training, indoor training, adding in fingerboarding, things like that, versus just taking some of the structure and continuing to try to progress through outdoor climbing alone?
2: Yeah, I think again, it's going to be a case by case basis. I think for you, uh, it turns out your finger strength is a limiting factor. Um, and you're going to want to spend some time concertedly working on that. Um, once you get that up a little bit, it's a little bit easier to maintain, but I do think, you know, just in general, I like the idea of, you know, a two month performance phase, a two month training phase, a little bit of rest two month performance phase, two month training phase, kind of going through in that cycle, more or less, uh, you can kind of adjust it depending on what areas you're going to and all that. Um, but it seems to be that around two months, uh, you start to kind of lose a little bit of that, that strength. And it's always good. You know, in my opinion, at the end of the day, climbing is a strength sport. Like it's, you, you need that to be able to do it. Um, so, re- doing repeated like two month cycles of training and then performing, training, performing, training, performing um, is a good way, it's a good rule of thumb for everybody. And I think in your case in particular, because your, your weaknesses are fingers and board climbing, uh, a two month block where you really focus in on that at least would be a good good thing to do it, as soon as as possible you know mm. or when you when you want to. And when I say at least two months, I mean I you know I think I would start out with the two month phase, but you know some people I know who uh, you know really are very like really good climbers climbing way hard. Um, but their pyramid is really flat on the top and there's a clear particular strength issue going on there like they might have to settle down for six months and just buckle down and train those fingers. <laughs> you're not just going to hang board for six months, um, but really train up whatever that weakness is. And you're, I don't think you're there at the moment. Um, you do have a pretty big, uh, your, your outdoor experience is pretty large. So that leads me to suspect that some really dedicated finger training and board training would be really helpful to your outside climbing. Mm. Even if something like just do, it doesn't seem like a board climb. Uh, yeah. That strength that you get climbing on that stuff and having your fingers just be that much stronger is going to make, you know, a world of difference.
0: Yeah, to- totally. That, that really makes sense. And it's interesting that you mentioned that one. I mean, I haven't, I haven't even been up the whole route yet that's something that i need to do sooner rather than later to to just know more definitively but uh having talked to a number of people about it and having belayed some friends on it and having watched videos it it, given that it's at smith rock it is actually surprisingly similar to board climbing you know the the two cruxes are pretty steep and they're I think one of them's, you know, an eight move or nine move V eight, and then like a 10 or 11 move V nine on pretty overhanging rock on small holds and really tensiony climbing. So I think that is going to be, um, a key, a key component for me is getting a lot better at that style. So Yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. And that,
2: yeah, I mean, you could, you know, just taking that as an, as a nice example for like a, a board session, like something to do. You know, I would recommend like timing how long it takes people to climb the, that 11 move section mm. and then do an up, down, up on your on a board, on a moon board that mimics that time and then increase the difficulty of the up, down, up mm. as you go. So, I mean, there's just, you know, so the board climbing, it can. Uh, it can be used for a,
0: for a lot of things. And I think it's really helpful. Well, cool. I think the I think that's probably the primary conversation point for next time. Um <laughs> I I think I'm I mentioned this to you. I'm I'm planning on spending some time in Washington uh with my family in June and into July and I think I'll climb outside a little bit in Leavenworth, but it's going to be hot. And, and that is a chunk of time where I would be willing to dedicate some real time in the gym on the boards and on the fingerboards. So it'd be, it'd be uh really interesting to uh, work with you some more and make a plan for that. And then maybe we can talk about that uh, next for the next round and, and yeah, share, yeah, share totally. the rationale behind that plan. Uh, is there anything else that, we haven't talked about with the Waco plan, uh, with, with any of the stuff that, um, that comes to mind that you feel is important to touch on that we haven't covered. Uh, no, I think we kind of, we did the rounds, you know, it's, uh, I think,
2: I mean, I, as far as I can think of everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I think we covered all the important stuff with the Waco trip. If people are curious, feel free to send us questions and we can, uh, tackle those for the next round and add any clarification if needed. Uh, one thing I want to ask about, and this kind of gets to some of your history, but you and I had a short talk about uh, weight. I was kind of bringing you up to speed on uh, a recent chapter in my climbing and, and kind of where I'm at now, like part of, part of the reason I felt like it was important to build bouldering experience again is that I'm climbing basically in a different body than I have in the past. And I'm climbing at a heavier weight and I feel like I'm really rediscovering what I'm good at and what I could be better at and what I'm, what I suck at. And, uh, something you said is that, you know, you try to stay within like stabbing distance of fighting weight. I think you said, like you, you kind of hover within a few pounds of your fighting weight. I just have a note here that says Redmond food bank. (laughs) Does that mean anything to you? (laughs) Uh, it'll mean something to me and my,
2: good friend jake slaney um (laughs) this takes this takes us way back uh 91 maybe 92 um right at the beginning of being psyched on climbing and i had been i've been living in jackson wyoming and skiing and working at a a housekeeping place and living in my sister's yard in a little hut thing (laughs) uh and Me and my buddy, Steve on went down to visit his parents in LA and on the way back, we kind of stopped it in red rocks. And I was like, this is awesome. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, so we drove back to Jackson and I immediately got, dug my car out of the snow and got in my car and just bailed on work. Didn't show up the next day and drove down to red rocks. Um, when it must've been like February or something like that with $400 in my pocket. And this was pre, no credit cards, no nothing. I had 400 bucks and I met Jake Slaney. He was in Red Rocks at the time. And those of you from the South know of Jake, I'm sure. Um, and and maybe a lot of, he lived in Salt Lake for a while too. Uh, but we then went on the road for like five or six months. Um, we ended up running out of money, in City of Rocks, that's how I ended up in Salt Lake. So we ran out of money in City of Rocks completely. Uh, we had to use his dad's gas card to drive from uh, City of Rocks down to Salt Lake, where we knew Dave Bell, and Dave put us up for a little while. I also camped in American Fork, and but yeah, so the Redmond story. So this, so we were we went from Vegas. We were in California for a little while. It's back when you could climb in Cave Rock. Actually, uh, I think I did a comp in San Francisco. And then or in Berkeley. And then we went up to uh Smith and climbed at Smith and lived at the grasslands. I don't know what it's like. That's the last time I've been to Smith in my first (laughs) 12A there at Smith. Um and uh so anyway, like we are like I'm saying 400 bucks. Uh most of that went to gas. Um, so we had no money uh at all. And we would go to the Redmond Food Bank every Monday and get get food for the week. And the way it works out is, you know, they'd give you the, the expired like donuts and baked goods and stuff like that. So like on Monday, we'd both get like a dozen donuts and eat a dozen donuts on Monday. (laughs) And then for like the rest of the next six days until we got to like the next Monday, it was like, we were splitting a can of tuna and a ramen two ramen noodle packages and a can of tuna, like a day, almost maybe a little bit of oatmeal (laughs) at the beginning. I got down to 136 pounds, I think. Oh I my god! Yeah, how tall um, are you? I wasn't climbing very well at all. So, <laughs> uh, you know, Jake was climbing quite well. Jake was a much better climber. He was climbing 513. I was falling off the warmups. Um, and uh, aren't you like six yeah.
0: six two or
2: yeah, about six two? Yeah, Jesus! I'm like 170 right now. I'm like 171, 172. Um, that yeah, is was incredible. Getting, uh, then we moved. Yeah, we we ended up in in Salt Lake, and uh, let's see. I got a job at a restaurant, and I just remember eating like off the off the tables, like people's bread and like their <laughs> leftover dessert. And I'd just be sitting in the back. They had like a soda machine, and you could get as much Coke as you wanted to, and just pounding. that. I think I gained like thirty pounds in like a week. <laughs> oh man But yeah that's my redmond food bank story i think we went <laughs> to the food bank in vegas too that's how we found out about it we hit up oh there's one in where there's one in uh in idaho too. Re- there there somewhere in idaho hmm. uh, near city of rocks so we were kind of doing the food bank tour <laughs> <laughs> it's not uh, the healthiest way to to go on a climbing trip i'll tell you that
0: <laughs> Aside from, uh, aside from donuts, what were the, uh, what were the hot items that you would go for at the food bank? Did, was it up to you at all or? No, you'd get a box. You so just get what they you get. would have
2: like a box that they'd just give you. And, uh, so you'd get whatever, usually there was like one expired baked good thing. Um, and then tuna was pretty popular, maybe some beans, ramen, uh, some pasta sometimes, Yep, yeah. that was about it.
0: But yeah, was, amazing.
2: <laughs> yeah, by the time I, we got to City of Rocks, I was so malnourished that I couldn't like, I could barely make it out to the cliff. Like,
0: wow, you know, I'm just just sort of sleeping. <laughs> yeah, one thirty six. That is that is mind blowing. That's crazy. <clears throat> yep. Yeah. Um, well, this is a real shift of gears, but I'm really curious, what are you excited about and focused on with your own climbing these days? Um, I don't know if we were recording at the start of this conversation, but you've got a three-year-old daughter.
1: Yeah.
2: I'm
0: sure that plays into the equation. (laughs) Basically going climbing is
2: my new climbing goal. (laughs) Um, yeah, I've been, so I, I'm, I'm psyched to get back at, back as at I keep getting hit by injuries. I had, I kind oh. of tore a bicep, I uh, had shoulder surgery. Um, I tore my MCL and a hamstring this fall. Uh, it seems like every time I start getting back into getting outside, I screw something up. Hmm. Um, and mostly that's really what I need to be doing. I need to be doing exactly like what you're, what <laughs> you doing Waco. Um, cause right. Like I, by any objective measure i'm as strong if not stronger than i've ever been i'm just not climbing outside that much Mm. so um, my root pier my boulder pyramid right now is really bad um and i get all excited so i because i have like a tuesday or something to go and i'll go and try some project and not do it i haven't climbed a b10 for like a year and i'm getting on like V12s and 13s, just like, ah, I can do it. I'm sure I've done this in the past (laughs) Um, and not doing them. Uh, So, so yeah. so But right now, I think my long-term goal is, yeah, I want to try to get up a V14. I've never gotten up a V14. So that's kind of... And when I started, it was like 14C, V14. So I got to do a 14C um, and a V14. I'm waiting until I hit 50. That way I can,
0: you know... (laughs) Make make the you headlines.
2: My old man strength going on.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. That's incredible. Um, I'm curious, based on all the data that you've gathered and uh, testing other people and seeing other people's performance, do you feel like you're at the numbers that you would need to be at, and it's just a matter of putting it all together, like you said, and building the pyramid towards it? Or do you feel like, have you seen that there's certain numbers in your, you know, certain areas of your own climbing that you need to build up through training. How are you thinking about, about that, about the numbers? Yeah.
2: Um, I think for me, it is really all about just getting that pyramid going again. I mean, if I look at my all time pyramid, I, I think it's, it works well, um, for V 14. Uh, but just the past three years have been so hit or miss. I've been able to bang out, you know, I've been going to font every year and usually get an eight a and a couple of C pluses out of that. So I'm kind of in, you know, touching distance pyramid wise at V12, but, uh, as far as pyramids go, I need to get a couple of those and at least a V13 before I start really thinking about a 14. Um, but strength wise, you know, my pull-up strength, like the basic climbing strength, uh, pull-ups, one arm hangs are all at or better than where I was when I was climbed, you know, I was climbing V13s. Oh, that's um, awesome. And, you know, like even heavy stuff like deadlifting, uh, I actually improved my squats this winter. Not that it's going to really help my climbing, but, uh, that's, I've, I've gotten better at that. I've gotten better at bench pressing. Um, so I've improved those numbers and yeah, it's mostly the on the rock experience, uh, right now um which kind of is you know from a strength system it's kind of an anaerobic capacity thing like being able to go hard for eight to ten moves um which is something that i get from climbing and i also try to train it but uh that's one thing that i think you need to be consistently climbing and consistently getting out and doing to really develop that particular aspect of climbing strength
1: Hmm.
2: um and that's just one i haven't been able to be consistent with gotcha you know and this 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 spring i've been getting up to little um and yeah like i said i went up i was like oh there's this thing that this v12 thing that i want to do and you know classic go out first day do all the moves think i'm going to do it go out again try it do okay on it, go out again, try it, do worse on it, go out again, <laughs> try it, do worse on it. <laughs> then finally a couple, like a week or so, two weeks ago, whatever, I went out, I couldn't even like do the easy move. And I was like, oh man. Um,
1: <laughs> <Damn>. So, <yeah. laughs>
2: so I'm, I'm guilty of doing all the things I tell people not to do. It's
1: hmm. that's,
2: that's where I needed an intervention a coach to come in. Yeah. Go, yeah. <laughs> hey, what the hell go out and do that. There's that new V10 and that D11 over there go do those things first.
0: Yeah, it it is uh it is interesting. It's when you have that pretty robust pyramid from your past, it is hard to to embrace that like, okay, that maybe not not a lot of that is relevant right now. Like I I have done all that experience. I have all that experience under my belt, but it's been some years and I need to really rebuild that to be able to climb at my best.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, totally. I mean, I and that's where I, you know, with the pyramid, like I say, you can you can carry it through. Um if you're pretty consistent in there, if not a lot has changed. But you know, the past really three years. I mean, the kid thing is is one, but really it's it was kind of the injuries, like mm. you know, that that sort of set me back kept setting me back. Um, none of them were particularly dire, but uh you know, it was enough to like, just when I'm starting to climb outside and get a few things under my belt, boom, Mm. you know, I get, I get hit by some stupid preventable thing, Mm. you know, shoulders and knees, you can prevent those injuries, just get stronger legs and stronger shoulders, Mm. uh, fingers, uh, you know, those are one that you kind of, it's hard to prevent a finger injury. You know, they kind of just come, you know, like for the most part. But for a lot of those sort of like shoulders, knees back, that stuff, you just, you, those are preventable in my opinion.
0: I mean, that's interesting to hear you say you've done a lot more lifting than probably the average climber that climbs at your level, anything that you feel like you could have done differently, wish you'd done differently.
2: Uh, I don't know. I think I was pretty good. Like I was saying, talking earlier when I blew that finger up in the valley that was, I don't know, I was mid early thirties, I think. Um, And uh, that I got way into lifting weights in that time and kettlebells and things like that uh, just because it was something to do. I also got into biking, Um, but it was something I could do and go full on with. And I think that's a little, and I think that was perfect timing. Like, I think that foundation of like basically a year of you know, kettlebells and lifting weights and riding a bike, uh, set me up to have a pretty solid, like now I'm, I have a pretty overall strong body. Um, and I think that that would be my advice to anybody, you know, if you're in your 20, like just go climbing, do your thing, train for climbing, 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 climbing. Um, when you start hitting your 30s, start thinking about the future, uh, <laughs> and getting a little bit of a foundation of weight training experience in there. It might not need it now, but when you start hit, if you hit your forties without any of it, then it's, it's going to be a, mm. a rough go. And I, you know, I mean, I made it to 40. When did I blow well, up my, my bicep? That was like uh 47 or something like that. So, mm. and then I feel like I'm, I'm pretty much back. So
1: nice. And I Very credit
2: the, Glad to hear it. I think it was that starting to really get into lifting weights. And, you know, I mean, you don't, some people put on a lot of weight, uh, when they lift weights, I don't, I guess I'm fortunate for climbing that way. Um, you have to be kind of smart about it too, but yeah, if you're, if you're one of those folks that does put on a lot of weight, you might not, you don't need to lift weights. Maybe, you know, maybe your body is already pretty strong and you don't really need that foundation moving on. Hmm. But if you're, you know, tall and skinny <laughs> going into it, it's like, yeah, you know, it he might be good to, I guess I would have done more push pressing if I was, you know, going back to my younger self.
0: Okay. To one.
2: Yeah. Like shoulders. And you think about it with shoulders, like if you put on a pound of muscle on both like a half a pound of muscle on either shoulder on the front of your shoulders like that is a huge you know take a half pound steak and stick it on the front of your shoulder (laughs) to see how much muscle that actually is Mm -hmm. the if you could do that you're not going to be able to do that but if you could even do that that super maximum amount of muscle gain like it's going to be so beneficial just in your immediate climbing strength but even long term and the detriment of a an extra pound on your shoulders isn't going to do any damage at all. Mm. You know, like it's only going to help and, you know, gaining weight, like I said, some people will, that's just their, that's their genetics or maybe it's their history of training. Um, But by, you know, a lot of people can't afford to gain a few pounds and also, and I think it would be helpful and it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Like when I did my MCL this fall, I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to gain weight. I'm going to get up to 180. I'm going to just, I'm too, I got to get bigger legs and stuff. And I tried and I got up to like 176 and then started climbing and went back down to 173. And it's like, oh, okay. Well, we huh. <laughs> um, you know, I was eating all this protein and stuff and it, still, it just didn't, I couldn't hit
0: 180.
2: Hmm. <laughs> even I, I was trying.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. It's you know, it's funny, I've always thought of myself as an easy gainer. And I, I think I think to some extent I am. I I think I'm more gifted for hypertrophy than for just raw neurological strength. But I think a big part of that was just assuming for a long time that my body's natural set point was lower than it actually was. Um so anytime I would eat a little bit of extra food or do any weightlifting, my I would just gain muscle mass, but in the last year, I've kind of made a shift and really just made a point to try to embrace my body type. And once I hit about 160, 165, things just leveled off. You know, I didn't continue to bulk up and and gain because I'm not training in a way that would, that would stimulate that, you know, I'm not training like a bodybuilder or anything. So yeah, that's been an interesting lesson that I've learned in the last couple of years. Like I always thought that I was an easy gainer, but that was probably just because I was kind of artificially keeping my body weight at 150 and my natural set point was was a little bit heavier than that with more muscle than that. So
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, you might be hard pressed to to get much above 165. Yeah. You know, like it's and which is kind of, but it's like, okay that's where i am and then you know you work with that and it's kind of you know keep you're probably a lot stronger in a lot of ways at
0: 165 than at 150 oh yeah for sure and my fingers are still catching up a little bit but i've i've talked about this already on the show i've been blown away at how far they've come in compensating for that difference in the last year or two um I, i never thought I never thought that I could feel as strong on my fingers at this kind of a body weight as I do now. And, and, uh, it makes me really excited about the future for sure. Yeah. But yeah, we'll see, we'll see training cycle ahead with some moon boarding and some hang boarding and, uh, we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what can happen. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be, it'll be good. We can
2: put some of this to action.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Um, this has been super fun. I've been looking forward to it for a while, and, and uh, I've really, really appreciated our conversations, uh, all the emailing back and forth during that time in Waco. Um, yeah, I, I really it really helped me a lot. It was really fun to experiment with you know bringing this mindful and focused training uh, attitude or, or focus into just climbing outside and and seeing where that took me. And I, I really enjoyed it and I think it helped my climbing a lot. And, uh, yeah, I I have you to thank for that. So thanks for all the help and thanks for the time today. And I look forward to, uh, the next round.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Cool. It's been fun.
0: Yeah. I guess there's something I always ask people that I almost missed over here, but, uh, or that I almost skipped over, but is there something that you've been feeling especially grateful for lately? That's something I like to ask everybody. Uh, Let me think about that one. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, Putting you on the spot. Yeah. I'm grateful that I I haven't gotten injured in the past couple of weeks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm I'm grateful for my kid. I, I think hunters has been, that's been a real good thing for me. And it's been, you know, Way better. I didn't know what I was getting into. And I'm, I'm enjoying it way more than, you know, I, I thought I would. And I, I have more fun when she's having fun than when I'm having fun. Wow, so, that's cool.
0: That's super sounds cool. Sounds like i that. Nice. You know, grateful for her. Right on, man. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> well, yeah, let's be in touch moving forward. And uh, I'm excited to um, brainstorm with you and make a plan for some indoor board training in june and july and uh we can do another round after that yeah yeah for sure it'll be good all right man okay have fun in st george thanks cheers enjoy the rest of your day okay okay bye shake it
1: up stop when the